0: Hi. Hello. And welcome to Kraken's cabin. I hope you're well, my friend. Please, sit. Sit. I have some good and I have some bad news for you. So which one first? Good news? Okay. Well, my lawyers have passed along the details, and I now have a contact for that number for N. You remember? She was the lady in the photograph, the one that was in my uncle's safe. We found a number in a poetry collection of the letters he kept. Although it was a deadline, we have been able to trace it to a person. Her name is Nicole de Chantre. She lives in the Midwest, a few hours behind us, as far as time zones go. I thought, tonight we'll share a story. When we're done, we should be able to call her. And, well, I don't know what to expect, but hopefully some answers. The bad news. Well, the renovations to this cabin will be a little bit more extensive than I thought. And for a little while, I'm afraid we need to find some other accommodations. I've booked a stay for us in time a little B&B called the Gutted Fish. I know, not a very pleasant name. But I have been told their sushi selection is incredible. Historically speaking, the building has a lot of brickwork and designs from the very beginning of this town's finding. I've taken care of all the expenses for you, but... It will mean there'll be a few weeks without sharing some stories. I hope you can take the time to rest and relax. You've been working hard for me for the last six months, and I think you deserve it. Pack lightly, and I'll make sure someone comes along and brings the rest of our stuff to the rooms. Packing can wait until tomorrow, though. Until then, my bedtime story. So, please, take a seat, and I'll begin. The Shadow Over Innsmouth, by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 1 During the winter of 1927-28, officials of the federal government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Massachusetts seaport of Innsmouth. The public first learned of it in February, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting under suitable precautions of an enormous number of crumbling worm eaten and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront Uninquiring souls let this occurrence pass as one of the major clashes in the spasmodic war on liquor Keener news followers, however wondered at the prodigious number of arrests the abnormally large force of men used in making them and the secrecy surrounding the disposal of the prisoners No trials, or even definite charges were reported. Nor were any of the captives seen thereafter in the regular jails of the nation. There were vague statements about disease and concentration camps, and later about dispersal in various naval and military prisons, but nothing positive ever developed. Innsmouth itself was left almost depopulated, and is even now only beginning to show signs of a sluggishly revived existence. Complaints from many liberal organisations were met with long, confidential discussions. Representatives were taken on trips to certain camps and prisons. As a result, these societies became surprisingly passive and reticent. Newspaper men were harder to manage, but seemed largely to cooperate with the government in the end. Only one paper, a tabloid always discounted because of its wild policies, mentioned the deep diving and Submarine that discharged torpedoes downwards in the marine abyss just beyond Devil Reef. That item, gathered by chance in a haunt of sealers, seemed indeed rather far-fetched, since the low, black reef lies a full mile and a half out from Innsmouth Harbour. People around the country and in the nearby towns muttered a great deal amongst themselves, but said very little to the outer world. They had talked about dying in half-deserted Innsmouth for nearly a century, "'Nothing new could be wilder or more hideous "'than what they had whispered and hinted years before. "'Many things had taught them secretiveness, "'and there was no need to exert pressure on them. "'Besides, they really knew little, "'for wild salt marshes, desolate and unpeopled, "'kept neighbours off from Innsmouth on the landward side. "'But at last I'm going to defy the ban on speech about this thing. "'Results, I'm certain.' are so thorough that no public harm save a shock of repulsion could ever accrue from the hinting of what was found by those horrified raiders at Innsmouth. Besides, what was found might possibly have more than one explanation. I do not know just how much of the whole tale has been told even to me, and I have many reasons for not wishing to probe deeper. For my contact with this affair has been closer than that of any other layman, and I've carried away impressions which are yet to drive me to drastic measures. It was I who fled frantically out of Innsmouth in the early morning hours, July 16th, 1927, and whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. I was willing enough to stay mute while the affair was fresh and uncertain, But now that it's an old story, with public interest and curiosity gone, I have an odd craving to whisper about those few frightful hours and that ill-rumoured and evilly-shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality the mere telling helps me to restore confidence in my own faculties to reassure myself that I was not simply the first to succumb to contagious nightmare hallucination it helps me too in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me I never heard of Innsmouth till the day before I saw it for the first and so far last time I was celebrating my coming of age by a chair of New England sightseeing antiquarian Genealogy, and I planned to go directly from ancient Newburyport to Arkham, whence my mother's family was derived. I had no car, but was travelling by train, trolley, and motor coach, always seeking the cheapest possible route. In Newburyport, they told me that the steam engine was the thing to take to Arkham, and it was only at the station ticket office, when I demurred at the high fare, that I learned about Innsmouth. The stout, shrewd faced agent. His speech showed him to be no local man, seemed sympathetic towards my efforts at economy, and made a suggestion that none of my other informants had offered. You could take that old bus, I suppose, he said with a certain hesitation. But I ain't thought much about herabouts It goes through Innsmouth. You may have heard about that. And so, the people don't like it. Run by an Innsmouth fellow, Joe Sargent, but never gets any custom from here. Or Arkham either, I guess. Wonder if it keeps running at all. I suppose it's cheap enough. But I never see more than two or three people in it. Nobody but those Innsmouth folks. Leaves the square, front of Hammond's Drugstore. At 10am and 7pm. Unless they've changed recently. Looks like a terrible rattle trap. I've never been on it. That was the first I ever heard of Shadowed Innsmouth. Any reference to a town not shown on common maps or listed in recent guidebooks would have interested me, and the agent's old manner of allusion roused something like real curiosity. A town able to inspire such dislike in its neighbours, I thought, must be at least rather unusual and worthy of a tourist's attention. If it came before Arkham, I would stop off there, and so I asked the agent to tell me something about it. He was very deliberate, and spoke with an air of feeling slightly superior to what he said. Innsmouth? Well, it's a queer kind of town down at the mouth of the Mani. used to be almost a city. Quite a port before the War of 1812, but it's all gone to pieces in the last hundred years or so. No railroad now. B&M never went through. The branch line from Raleigh was given up years ago. More empty houses than there are people, I guess and no business to speak of except fishing and lobstering. Everybody treats mostly either here or in Arkham or Ipswich. Once they had quite a few mills, but nothing's left now except one gold refinery, running on the leanest kind of part time. Not refinery, though. Used to be a big thing. An old man Marsh, who owns it, must be richer than crosses. Queer old duck though. Sticks mighty close to his home. He's supposed to have developed some skin disease or deformity late in life that makes him keep out of sight. Grandson of the captain, Obed no Marsh, who founded the business. His mother seems to have been kind of a foreigner. They say he's South Sea Islander, so everybody raised keen where he married a Nipswich girl 50 years ago. They always do that about Innsmouth people, and folks here and hereabouts always try to cover up any Insmath blood they have in them. But Marsh's children and grandchildren look like just everybody else as far as I can see. I've had him pointed out to me here, though, come to think about it, the elder children don't seem to be around much lately. Never saw the old man. Why is everybody so down on Innsmouth? Well, young fellow, you mustn't take too much stock on what people around here say. They're hard to get started, but once they do, they never let up. They've been telling the same things about Innsmouth, well, whispering them mostly. For the last hundred years and I guess they're more scared than anything else Some of the stories in make you laugh About old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil And bringing him sort of hell To live in his mouth or Some kind of devil worship and awful sacrifice in some place near the wharfs That people stumbled on around 1845 Or thereabouts But I come from Panton, Vermont And that kind of story don't go down with me You ought to hear though well, some of the old-timers tell about the Black Reef off the coast. Devil Reef, they call it. It's well above water, a good part of the time, and never much below it. But at that, you can hardly call it an island. The story is that there's a whole legion of devils seen sometimes on that reef, sprawled about, or darting in and out some kind of cave near the top. It's a rugged, uneven thing. A good bit over a mile high. And towards the end of shipping days sailors used to make big two tours just to avoid it that is sailors that didn't heal from Innsmouth one of the things they had against old Captain Marsh was that he was supposed to land on it sometimes at night when the tide was right maybe he did for I dare say the rock formation was interesting it's just barely possible he was looking for pirate loot or maybe finding it but there was talk of his dealing with the demons there fact is I guess on the whole, it was really the captain gave the bad reputation to the reef. That was before the big epidemic of 1846, when over half of the folks of Innsmouth were carried off. They never did quite figure out what the trouble was, but it was probably some kind of foreign disease that was brought in from China or somewhere by the shipping. It surely was bad enough. There were riots all over it, all sorts of ghastly doings that I don't quite believe ever got outside of the time. But... I left this place in an awful shape. Never came back. Can't be more than 300, 400 people living there now. But the real thing behind the way the folks feel is simply race prejudice. And I don't say I'm blaming those that I hold it. I hate Innsmouth folks myself. And I wouldn't care to go to their town. I suppose you know. Though I can see you're a westerner by your talk. What a lot of our New England ships used to have to do with the ports in Africa, Asia... South Seas, and everywhere else, and what kinds of people they sometimes brought back with them. You probably heard about the Salem man that came home with a Chinese wife. Maybe you know there's still a bunch of Fiji islanders somewhere around Cape Cod. Well, there must be something like the back of the Innsmouth people. The place always was badly cut off from the rest of the country by marshes and creeks, and we can't be sure about the ins and outs of the matter but it's pretty clear that old Captain Marsh must have brought home some odd specimens when he had three of his ships in commission back in the 20s and 30s. There's certainly a strange kind of streak in the insmats, folks today. Don't know how to explain it, but it sort of makes you crawl. You know it's little than sergeant if you take his bus. Some of them have queer, narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy, starry eyes that never seem to shut. And their skin ain't quite right. Rough and scabby, and the sides of their necks are all shriveled or creased up. And they all get bald too, very young. The older folks look the worst. Fact is, I don't believe I've ever seen a very old chap of that kind. I guess they must die of looking in the glass. Animals hate them. They used to have lots of horse trouble before the automobiles came in. Nobody run here or in Arkham or Ipswich will have anything to do with them. And they act kind of offish themselves when they come to town or when anyone tries to fish on their grounds. Queer how fish are always thick off Innsmouth Harbour when there aren't anywhere else around, but try to fish there yourself and see how the folks will chase you off. Those people used to come in here off the railroad, walking and talking the train at Rowley after the branch was dropped. But now they use that bus. Yes, there's a hotel in Innsmouth. It's called the Gilman House. But I don't believe it can amount to much. I wouldn't advise you to try it. You'd better stay over here, take the ten o'clock bus tomorrow morning. and you can get an evening bus for Arkham at eight o'clock. There was a factory inspector who stopped at the Gilman a couple of years ago, and he had a lot of unpleasant hints about the place. Seems they got a queer crowd there, for this fellow heard voices in the other rooms. Most of them was empty, and they gave him the shivers. It was a foreign talk, he thought, but he said that the bad thing about it was the kind of voice that sometimes spoke. It sounded so unnatural, sloppy, like he said, that he didn't dare undress and go to sleep. He just waited up and lit out the first thing in the morning. Talk went on most of the night. Now, this fellow, Casey, his name was, he had a lot to say about how the Innsmouth folks watched him seemed kind of on guard. From found the Marsh Refinery, a queer place. It's an old mill on the lower falls of the Massachusetts. Well, he tallied it up with what I'd heard. Books in bad shape, and no clear account of any kind of dealings. You know, it's always been kind of a mystery when the Marshes get the gold they refine. They never seemed to do much at buying in that line, but years ago they shipped out an enormous lot of ingots, it used to be talk of a queer foreign kind of jewellery that the sailors and refinery men sometimes sold on the sly, or that was seen once or twice on some marsh men, women folks. People allowed maybe old Captain Obed traded for it in some heathen port, especially since he always ordered stacks of glass beads and trinkets, such as seafaring men used to get for native trade. Others thought, and still think, he found an old pirate cash out in Devil's Grief. But here's the funny thing. The old captain's been dead these 60 years now. I ain't been a good-sized ship out of the place since the Civil War. But just the same, the marshes still keep on buying a few of these native trade things. Mostly glass and rubber jujus, they tell me. Maybe the Innsmouth folks like to look at themselves. God knows they've got to be about as bad as the South Sea cannibals and guinea savages. That place of 46 must have taken off the best blood of the place. Anyway, there's a dreadful lot now, and the marshes and other rich folks are as bad as any. As this told you, probably ain't more than 400 people in the whole town, in spite of all the streets they say there are. I guess they're what they call white trash down south. Lawless and sly, full of secret things. They get a lot of fish and lobsters and do exporting by truck. It's queer how the fish swarm right there and nowhere else. Nobody can keep track of these people. The state school officials and census men have a double of the time. You can bet the prying strangers aren't welcome around Innsmouth. I heard personally in more than one business or government man that's disappeared there. When there's loose talk of one who went all crazy and he's out at Danvers now. They must have fixed up some awful scare for that fellow. So, that's why I wouldn't go at night if I was you. Never been there and I have no wish to go. But I guess a daytime trip couldn't hurt you. Even though the people hereabouts will advise you not to make it. If you're just sightseeing looking for old-time stuff, Innsma I thought I'd have quite a place for you. And so, I spent part of the evening at Newburyport Public Library looking up data about Innsma. When I tried to question the natives in the shops, the lunchroom, the garages, the fire station, I found them even harder to get started than the ticket agent had predicted and realised that I couldn't spare the time to overcome their first instinctive reticences. I had a kind of obscure suspiciousness, as if there was something amiss with anyone too much interested in Innsmouth. At the YMCA, where I was shopping, the clerk merely discouraged my going to such a dismal, decadent place, and the people of the library showed much the same attitude. Clearly, in the eyes of the educated, Innsmouth was merely an exaggerated case of civic degradation, The Essex County histories on the library shelves had very little to say to except that the town was founded in 1643 noted for shipbuilding before the revolution a seat of great marine prosperity in the early 19th century or later a minor factory centre using the Manot as power The epidemic and riots of 1846 were very sparsely treated as if they formed a discredit to the county References to decline were few though the significance of a later record was unmistakable. After the Civil War, all industrial life was confined to the March Refining Company, and the marketing of gold ingots formed the only remaining bit of major commerce, aside from the eternal fishing. That fishing paid less and less at the price of the commodity fell, and large-scale corporations offered competition. But there was never a darth of fish around Innsmouth Harbour. Foreigners seldom settled there, and there was some discreetly veiled evidence that a number of Poles and Portuguese who had tried it had been scattered in particularly drastic fashion. Most interesting of all, though, was a glance reference to the strange jewellery vaguely associated with Innsmouth. It had evidently impressed the whole countryside more than a little, for mention was made of specimens in the museum of the Miskatonic University at Arco, and in the display room of the Newburyport Historical Society. The fragmentary descriptions of these things were bald and prosaic, but they hinted to me at some undercurrents of persistent strangeness. Something about them seemed so odd and provocative that I couldn't help put them out of my mind. Despite the relative lateness of the hour, I resolved to see the only local sample. said to be a large, queerly proportioned thing evidently meant for a tiara, if it could be possibly arranged. The librarian gave me a note of introduction to the curator of the society, a Miss Anna Tilton, who lived nearby. And after a brief explanation of the ancient gentlewoman was kind enough to pilot me into the closed building, since the hour was not outrageously late. The collection was a notable one indeed, but in my present mood I had eyes for nothing but the bizarre object, which glistened in the corner cupboard under the electric lights. It took no excessive sensitiveness to beauty to make me literally gasp at the strange, unearthly splendour of the alien, opulent fantasy that rested there, on a purple velvet cushion. Even now I can hardly describe what I saw, though it was clearly enough some sort of a tiara, as the description had said. It was tall in front, with a very large and curiously irregular periphery, as if designed for a head of almost freakishly elliptical outline. The material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weird, lighter lustrousness hinted at some strange alloy with an equally beautiful and scarcely identifiable metal. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying and striking and puzzlingly untraditional designs. Some simply geometrical, some plainly marine, chased or moulded in high relief on its surface with a craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. The longer I looked, the more this thing fascinated me. And in this fascination, there was a curiosity and a disturbing element hardly to be classified or accounted for. At first, I decided that it was the queer, otherworldly quality of the art which made it uneasy. All other art objects I had ever seen either belonged to some known racial or national stream, or else were curiously modernistic defiances of every recognised stream this tiara was neither. It clearly belonged to some settled technique of infinite maturity and perfection. Yet that technique was utterly remote from any eastern or western, ancient or modern, which I'd ever heard of or seen exemplified. It was as if the workmanship were that of another planet. However, I soon saw that my uneasiness had a second and perhaps equally potent source residing, in the pictorial and mathematical suggestion of the strange designs. The patterns all hinted of remote secrets and unimaginable abysses in time and space, and the monotonously aquatic nature of the reliefs became almost sinister. Among those reliefs were fabulous monsters of a boring grotesqueness and malignity, half Ithic and half Bartarian in suggestion. Which one could not disassociate from a certain haunting and uncomfortable sense of pseudo memory, as if they called up some image from deep cells and tissues, whose retentive functions are wholly primal and awesomely ancestral. At times I fancied that every contour of these blasphemous fish frogs were overflowing with the ultimate quintessence of unknown and inhuman evil. In odd contrast to the tiara's aspect was its brief and prosy history as related by Miss Tilton. It had been pawned for a ridiculous sum at a shop in State Street in 1873 by a drunken Innsmouth man, shortly afterwards killed in a brawl. The Society had acquired it directly from the pawnbroker, at once given it to a display worthy of its quality. It's labelled as possible East Indian or indo chinese providence, though the attribution was frankly tentative. Miss Tilton comparing all possible hypothesis regarding its origin and its presence in England, was inclined to believe that it formed part of some sort of exotic pirate hoard discovered by old Captain Abedmarsh. This view was surely not weakened by the insistent offers of purchase at high price, which the marshes began to make as soon as they knew of its presence, and which they repeated to this day despite the society's unvarying determination not to sell it. As the good lady showed me out of the building, she made it very clear that the pirate theory of the marsh fortune was a popular one among the intelligent people of the region. Her own attitude towards Shadowed Innsmouth, which she had never seen, was one of disgust, at a community slipping far down the cultural scale. She assured me that the rumours of devil worship were partly justified by a peculiar secret cult which had gained force there and engulfed all the orthodox churches. It was called, she said, The Esoteric Order of Diakon was undoubtedly a debased, quasi-pagan thing imported from the East century before, at a time when the Innsmouth fisheries seemed to be going barren. Its persistence among a simple people was quite natural in the view of the sudden and permanent return of abundantly free, fine fishing, and it soon came to be that the grid's influence in the town, Replacing the me Freemasonry altogether and taking up headquarters in the old Masonic Hall on New Church Green. All this to the pious Miss Tilton formed an excellent reason for shunning the ancient town of decay and desolation. But to me it was merely a fresh incentive. To my archaeological, architectural, and historical anticipations were all now added acute zeal, and I could scarcely sleep in my small room at the Y as the night wore away. Chapter Two Shortly before ten the next morning, I stood with one small valise in front of Hammond's Drugstore in Old Market Square, waiting for the Innsmouth bus. As the hour for its arrival drew near, I noticed a general drift of the loungers to other places up the street, or to the ideal lunch across the square. Evidently, the ticket agent had not exaggerated the dislike, which local people bore towards Innsmouth and its denizens. In a few moments, a small motor coach of extreme decrepitude and dirty grey colour rattled down State Street, made a turn, and drew up at the curb beside me. I felt immediately that it was the right one. I guess which the half legible sign on the windshield, Arkham, Innsmouth, Newport, soon verified. There were only three passengers, dark, Unkempt men of sullen visage and somewhat useful cast. And when the vehicle stopped, they clumsily shambled out and began walking up State Street in a silent, almost furtive fashion. The driver also alighted, and I watched him as he went into the drugstore to make some purchase. This, I reflected, must be the Joe Sargent mentioned by the ticket agent. And even before I noticed any details there, spread over me a wave of spontaneous aversion which could be neither checked nor explained. What suddenly struck me as very natural that the local people should not wish to ride on a bus owned and operated, driven by this man, or to visit a oftener than possible the habitat of such a man and his kinsfolk. When the driver came out of the store, I looked at him more carefully and tried to determine the source of my evil impression. He was a thin, stoop-shouldered man, not much more than six feet tall dressed in a shabby blue civilian clothing and wearing a frayed golf cap. His age was perhaps thirty-five, but in the odd deep creases in the sides of his neck, it made him seem older when one did not study his dull, expressionless face. He had a narrow head, bulging, watery blue eyes that seemed never to wink, a flat nose, a receding forehead and chin, and singularly undeveloped ears. His thick, long lip and coarse-poured, greyish cheeks seemed almost beardless except for some sparse yellow hairs that straggled and curled in irregular patches, and in places the surface seemed queerly irregular, as if keeling from some curitaneous disease. His hands were large and heavily veined, and had a very unusual greyish-blue tinge. The fingers were strikingly short in proportion to the rest of his structure, and seemed to have a tendency to curl closely into his huge pan. As he walked towards the bus I observed his peculiarly shambling gait and saw that his feet were inordinately immense. The more I studied them, the more I wondered how I could buy any shoes to fit them. A certain greasiness about the fellow increased my dislike. He was evidently given to working or lounging around the fish stocks, and carried with him so much of the characteristic smell. Just what foreign blood was in him I couldn't even guess. His elderly certainly did not look Asiatic, Polynesian, Levitine or African. Yet I could see why the people found alien. I, myself, would have thought of biological de- generation, the lineage. I was sorry when I saw there would be no other passengers on this bus. Somehow I did not like the idea of riding alone with this driver. But as his leaving time obviously approached I conquered my qualms, and followed the man aboard, extending him a dollar bill and murmuring the single in his mouth. He looked curiously at me for a second as he returned the forty cents change without speaking. I took a seat far behind him, but on the same side of the bus, since I wished to watch the shore during the journey. At length the decrepit vehicle started with a jerk, and rattled noisily past the old brick buildings of State Street amid a cloud of vapour from the exhaust glancing at the people on the sidewalks I thought i detected in the mercurious wish to avoid even looking at the bus or at least a wish to avoid seeming to look at it then we turned left in the High Street where the going was smoother flying by stately old mansions of early republic and still older colonial farmhouses passing the lower green and Parker River and finally emerging into a long, monotonous stretch of open shore country. The day was warm and sunny. But the landscape of sand, sedge grass, and stunted shrubbery became more and more desolate as we proceeded. Out of the window, I could see the blue water and the sandy line of Plum Island. We presently drew very near the beach as our narrow road veered off from the main highway to Rowley and Ipswich. But there were no visible houses and I could tell by the state of the road the traffic was very light hereabouts. The small, weather-worn telephone poles carried only two wires. Now and then we crossed crude wooden bridges over tidal creeks that went far inland and promoted the general isolation of the region. Once in a while I noticed dead stumps and crumbling foundations above the drifting sand, and recalled the old tradition quoted in one of the histories that I'd read that this was once a fertile and thickly settled countryside. The change, it was said, came simultaneously with the Innsmouth epidemic of 1846. and was thought by simple folk to have a dark connection with hidden forces of evil. Actually, it was caused by the unwise cutting of woodlands near the shore, which robbed the soil of its best protection and opened the way for waves of windblown sand. At last, we lost the sight of Plum Island... And saw the vast expanse of the open Atlantic to our left. Our narrow course began to climb steeply, and I felt a singular sense of disquiet in looking at the lonely crests ahead, where the rutted roadway met the sky. It was as if the bus were about to keep on its own ascent, leaving the same earth altogether and merging with the unknown arcana of upper air and ecliptical sky. The smell of the sea took on an ominous implication and the silent driver's bent, rigid back and narrow head became more and more hateful. As I looked at him, I saw that the back of his head was almost as hairless as his face, having only a few straggling yellow strands upon a grey, scabrous surface. Then we reached the crest and beheld the outspread valley beyond, where the manak joins the set just north of the long line of cliffs that culminate in Kingsport Head, and veer off towards Cape Ban. On a far, misty horizon, I could just make out the disty profile, ahead, Topped up by a queer, ancient house of so many legends are told, but for the moment all my attention was captured by the near panorama just below me. I had, I realised, come face to face with a rumour shadowed in It was a town of wide extent, dense construction, yet one with a portentous darth of visible life from the tangle of chimney pots scarcely a wisp of smoke came, and three tall steeples loomed stark and unpainted against the seaward horizon one of them was crumbling down at the top and in that and another there were only black gaping holes where clock dials should have been the vast huddle of sagging gabriel roofs and peak gables conveyed with offensive clearness the idea of wormy decay and as we approached along the now descending road I could see that many roofs had wholly caved in there were some large square Georgian houses too, with hipped roofs, cupolas and real widow's walks. These were mostly well backed from the water, and one or two seemed to be in moderately sound condition. Stretching inland from among them, I saw the rusted, grass-grown line of the abandoned railway, with leaning telegraph poles now devoid of wires, and the half-obscure lines of the old carriage roads to Rowley and Ipswich. The decay was the worst close to the waterfront, though in its very midst I could spy the whole white belfry of a fairly well preserved brick structure, which looked like a small factory. The harbour, long clogged with sand, was enclosed by an ancient stone breakwater, in which I could begin to discern the minute forms of a few seated fishermen, and whose end were what looked like the foundations of a bygone lighthouse. A sandy tongue had formed inside this barrier. And upon it I saw a few decrepit cabins, more dories and scattered lobster pots. The only deep water seemed to be where the river poured out past the Belfried structure and turned southwards to join the ocean at breakwater's end. Here and there the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shores to end in indeterminate rottenness. Those farthest south seemed to be the most decayed. And far out at sea, despite a high tide, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of old, latent malignancy. This, I knew, must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning seemed superadded to the grim repulsion. And oddly enough, I found this overtone more disturbing than primary impressions. We met no one on the road, presently began to pass deserted farms in varying stages of ruin. Then I noticed a few inhabited houses with rags stuffed in the broken windows and shells and dead fish lying among the littered yards. Once or twice I saw listless looking people working in barren gardens or digging clams on the fishy smelling beach below. Groups of dirty, simian-visaged children playing around weed-grown doorsteps. Somehow these people seemed more disquieting than the dismal buildings for almost every one of them had certain peculiarities of face and motions which I instinctively disliked, without being able to define or comprehend them. For a second, I thought this typical physique suggested some picture I'd seen, perhaps in a book, under circumstances of particular horror or melancholy, but in this pseudo-recollection, it passed very quickly. As the bus reached the lower level, I began to catch the steady note of a waterfall through the unnatural stillness, The leaning unpainted houses grew thicker, lined both sides of the road, and displayed more urban tendencies than did those that we were leaving behind. The panorama ahead had contracted to a street scene, and in spots I could see where a cobblestone pavement and stretches of brick sidewalk had formerly existed. All the houses were apparently deserted, and there were occasional gaps where tumble-down chimneys and cellar walls told of buildings that had collapsed. Pervading everything was most nauseous fishy odour imaginable soon cross streets and junctions began to appear those on the left leaning towards the shoreward realms of unpaved squalor and decay while those on the right showed vistas of departed grandeur so far I'd seen no people in the town but there now came signs of sparse habitation curtain windows here and there an occasional battered motor car at the curb. pavement and sidewalks were increasingly well defined, and though most of the houses were quite old wood and brick structures of an early 19th century, they were obviously kept fit for habitation as an amateur antiquarian I'd almost lost my awful disgust, and my feeling of menace and repulsion amidst this rich, unaltered survival from this past but I was not to reach my destination without one very strong impression of poignantly disagreeable quality the bus had come to some sort of stop outside a concourse or radial point, with churches on two sides and the bedraggled remains of a circular green in the centre and I was looking at a large pillared hall on the right-hand junction ahead. The structure's once white paint was now grey and peeling and the black and gold sign on the pediment was so faded that I could only with difficulty make out the words Esoteric Order of Dagon So this this was the former Masonic Hall now given over to the cult. cult. As I strained to decipher this encryption, my notice was distracted by the raucous tones of a cracked bell across the street, and I quickly turned to look out the window on my side of the coach. The sun came from a squat-tarred stone church of manifestly later date than most of the houses, built in a clumsy Gothic fashion and having a disproportionately high basement with shuttered windows. Though the hands of its clock were missing on the side, I glimpsed. I noticed those hoarse strokes were tolling the hour of eleven. Then suddenly, all thoughts of time were blotted out by an onrushing image of sharp intensity, an unaccountable horror which had seized me before I knew what it really was. The door of the church basement was open, revealing a rectangle of blackness inside. And as I looked, a certain object crossed or seemed to cross that dark rectangle burning into my brain a momentary conception of a nightmare, which was all the more maddening because analysis could not show a single nightmarish quality in it. It was a living object, the first except the driver that I'd seen since entering the compact part of this town. And had I been in a steadier mood, I would have found nothing whatsoever of the terror in it. Clearly, as I realised a moment later, it was the pastor, clad in some peculiar vestments Doubtless introduced since the Order of Dagon had modified the ritual of the local churches. The thing which had probably caught my first subconscious glance and supplied the touch of bizarre horror was the tall tiara he wore, an almost exact duplicate of the one Miss Tilton had shown me the previous evening. This, acting on my imagination, had supplied nameless sinister qualities to the indetermined face and robed, shambling form beneath it. There was not, I soon decided, any reason why I should not have felt that shuddering touch of evil pseudo-memory. Was it not natural that a local mystery cult should adopt among its regimentals a unique type of headdress made familiar to the community in some strange way, perhaps as a treasure trove? A very thin sprinkling of repellent-looking youngish people now became visible on the sidewalks. Lone individuals and silent knots of two or three the lower floors of crumbling houses sometimes harboured small shops with dinghy signs, and I noticed a parked truck or two as we rattled along. The sound of waterfalls became more and more distinct, and presently I saw a fairly deep river gorge ahead, spanned by a wide iron-railed highway bridge, beyond which a large square opened out. As we clanked over the bridge, I looked over both sides and observed some factory buildings on the edge of the grassy bluff partway down. The water far below was very abundant and I could see two vigorous sets of falls upstream on my right and at least one downstream on my left. From this point the noise was quite deafening. Then we rolled into the large semicircular square across the river and drew up to the right-hand side in front of a tall couple of crowned building with remnants of yellow paint and with a half effaced sign proclaiming it to be the Gilman House. I was glad to get out of that bus and I once proceeded to check my valets in the shabby hotel lobby. There was only one person in sight, an elderly man without which I had come to call the Innsmouth Light. And i decided not to ask him any of the questions which had bothered me, remembering that odd things had been noticed in this hotel. Instead, I strolled out to the square, from which the bus had originally gone, and studied the scene minutely and appraisingly. One side of the cobblestoned open space was the straight line of the river; the other was a semicircle of slant-roofed brick buildings about the eighteen hundred period, from which several streets radiated away to the southeast, south, and southwest. Lamps were depressingly few and small, all low-powered incandescents, and I was glad that my plans called for departure before dark, even though I knew the moon would be bright tonight. The buildings were all in fair condition and included perhaps a dozen shops and various operations, one of which was a grocery of First National Team, other a dismal restaurant, a drugstore, a wholesale fish dealer's office, and still another at the eastward extremity of the square, near the river, an office of the town's only industry, the Marsh Refining Company. There were perhaps ten people visible, and four or five automobiles and motor trucks scattered about didn't need to be told that this was the civil centre of Innsmouth. Eastward I could catch blue glimpses of the harbour, against which rose the decaying remains of three once-beautiful Georgian steeples. And towards the shore on the opposite bank of the river, I saw the white belfry surmounting what I took to be the marsh refinery. For some reason or other, I chose to make my first inquiries at the chain grocery, whose personnel was not likely to be native to Innsmouth. I found a solitary boy of about 17 in charge and was pleased to note the brightness and the affability which promised useful and cheerful information. He seemed exceptionally eager to talk and I soon gathered that he did not like the place, its fishy smell or its furtive people. A word with any outsider was a relief to him. He hailed from Arkham, boarded with a family who came from Ipswich and went back whenever he got a moment off. His family did not like him to work in Innsmouth but the chain had transferred him there and he didn't wish to give up his job. There was, he said, no public library or chamber of commerce in Innsmouth but I could probably find my way about. The streets that I come down was federal. West of that was the fine old resident streets Broad, Washington, Lafayette and Adams and east of it was the shoreward slums. It was in these slums along the main street that I would find the old Georgian churches, but they were all long abandoned. It would be well not to make oneself too conspicuous in such neighbourhoods, especially north of the river, since the people were sullen and hostile. Some strangers had even disappeared. Certain spots were almost forbidden territory, as he had learned at considerable cost. One must not, for example, linger much around marsh refinery, or any around still-used churches, or around the pillared order of Dagon Hall at New Church Green. These churches were very odd, all violently disavowed by their respective denominators elsewhere, and apparently using the queerest kind of ceremonials and clerical vestments. Their creeds were heterodox and mysterious, involving hints of certain marvellous transformations leading to bodily immortality, of a sort, on this earth. The youth's own pastor... Dr. Wallace of Ashbury M.E. Church in Arkham had gravely urged him not to join any church in Innsmouth. As for the Innsmouth people, youth hardly knew what to make of them. They were disfurtive and seldom seen as animals that live in burrows. One could hardly imagine how they passed the time apart from their desultory fishing. Perhaps, judging from the quantities of bootleg liquor that they'd consumed, they lay for the most part of daylight hours in alcoholic stupor, they seemed solemnly banded together in some sort of fellowship and understanding, despising the world together as if they had access to other and preferable spheres of event Their appearance, especially those stirring on winking eyes which one never saw shut, was certainly shocking enough, and their voices were disgusting. It was awful to hear them chanting in their churches at night, and especially during their main festivals or revivals, which fell twice a year, on April the 30th and October 31st. They were very fond of the water, and swam a great deal in both river and harbour. Swimming races at the Devil Reef were very common, and everyone in sight seemed well able to share in this arduous sport. When one came to think of it, it was generally only rather young people who were seen about in public, and of these the oldest were apt to be the most tainted looking. When exceptions did occur, they were mostly persons with no trace of aberracy, like the old clerk at the hotel one wondered what became of the bulk of the older folk and whether the Innsmouth look was not a strange and insidious disease phenomenon which increases hold as the years advanced. Only a very rare affliction, of course, could bring about such a vast and radical anatomical change in a single individual after maturity. Changes involving osseous factors as basic as the shape of the skull. But then, even in this aspect, It was no more baffling and unheard of than the visible features of the malady as a whole. It would be hard, the youth implied, to form any real conclusions regarding such a matter, since one never came to know the natives personally, no matter how long one might live in Innsmouth. The youth was certain that many specimens, even worse than the worst visible ones, were kept locked indoors in some places. People sometimes heard the queerest kind of sounds. The tottering waterfront hovels north of the river were reputedly connected by hidden tunnels, being thus a veritable Warren of unseen abnormalities. What kind of foreign blood, if any, these beings had, it was impossible to tell. They sometimes kept certain especially repulsive characters out of sight, when government agents and others from the outside world came to town. It would be of no use, my informant said, to ask the natives anything about this place. The only one who would talk was a very aged but normal-looking man who lived at the poorhouse on the north rim of the town and spent his time walking about or lounging around the fire station. This character, Zadok Allen, was 96 years old and somewhat touched in the head, besides being the town drunkard. He was a strange, furtive creature who constantly looked over his shoulder as if afraid of something and, when sober, could not be persuaded to talk at all with strangers. He was, however, unable to resist any offer of his favourite poison, and once drunk would furnish the most astonishing fragments of whispered reminiscence. After all, though, little useful data could be gained from him, since his stories were all insane. Incomplete hints of impossible marvels and horrors, which could never have any source save in his own disordered fancy. Nobody ever believed him. But the natives did not like him to drink and talk with strangers, and it was always not safe to be seen questioning him. It was probably from him that some of the wildest popular whispers and delusions were derived. Several non-native residents had reported monstrous glimpses from time to time, but between old Zadok's tales and the malformed inhabitants, it was no wonder such illusions were current. None of the non-natives ever stayed out late at night, and there was a widespread impression that it was not wise to do so. Besides, the streets were loathsomely dark. As for business the abundance of fish was certainly almost uncanny, but the natives were taking less and less advantage of it. Moreover, prices were falling and competition was growing. Of course, the town's real business was the refinery, whose commercial office was on the square only a few doors east of where we stood. Old Man Marsh was never seen, but sometimes went to work in the old closed curtain car. There were all sorts of rumours about how Marsh came to look, he had once been a great dandy, and people still said he wore the frock-coated refinery of the Edwardian Age, curiously adapted to certain deformities. His sons had formerly conducted the office in the square, but latterly they'd been keeping out aside a good deal too, and leaving the brunt of the affairs to the younger generation. The sons and their sisters had come to look very queer, especially among the elder ones, and it was said that their health was failing. One of the Marsh Daughters was a repellent, reptilian looking woman who wore an excess of weird jewellery, clearly of the same exotic tradition as that to which the strange tiara belonged. My informant had noticed it many times and had heard it spoken as if coming from some secret horde, either of pirates or of demons. The clergymen, or priests, or whatever they were called nowadays, also wore this kind of ornament as a headdress, but one seldom caught glimpses of them, other specimens the youth had not seen, though many were rumoured to exist around Innsmouth. The Marshes, together with three other greatly bred families of the time, the Waits, the Gilmans, and the Elliots, were all very retiring. They lived in immense houses along Washington Street, and several were reputed to harbour and concealment certain living kinsfolk, whose personal aspect forbade public view, on whose deaths had been reported and recorded. Warning me that many of the street signs were down, the youth drew for my benefit a rough but ample and painstaking sketch map of the town's salient features. After a moment's study, I felt sure that it would be of great help and pocketed with profuse thanks. Disliking the dinginess of the single restaurant that I'd seen, I brought a first supply of cheese crackers and ginger wafers to serve as my lunch later on. My programme, I decided, would be to thread the principal streets talk with any non-natives I might encounter, and catch the 8 o'clock coach for Ark. The town, I could see, formed a significant and exaggerated example of communal decay. But being no sociologist, I would limit my serious observations to the field of architecture. Thus, I began my systematic, through half-bewildered tour, of Innsmouth's narrow, shadow blooded ways. Crossing the bridge and turning towards the roar of the Lower Falls, I passed close to the Marsh Refinery, which seemed to be oddly free from the noise of industry. This building stood on the steep river bluff near a bridge and an open confluence of streets which I took to be the earliest civic centre, displaced after the revolution by the present town square. Recrossing the gorge on the Main Street Bridge, I struck a region of utter desertion, which somehow made me shudder. Collapsing huddles of gambrel roofs formed a jagged and fantastic skyline, above which rose the ghoulish, decapitated steeple of an ancient church. Some houses along Main Street were tenant, but most were tightly boarded up. Down on paved side streets, I saw the black, gaping windows of deserted hovels, many of which leaned at perilous and incredible angles through the sinking of part of the foundations. Those windows stared so spectacularly that it took a courage to turn eastward towards the waterfront. Certainly the terror of the deserted house swells in geometrical rather than arithmetical progression, its houses multiply to form a city of stark desolation. The sight of such endless avenues of fishy eyed vacancy and death, and the thought of such linked infinities of black brooding compartments given over to cobwebs and memories on the conqueror worm, start up vestigial fears and aversions though not even the status philosophy can disperse. Fish Street was deserted as main, though it differed in having many brick and stone warehouses still in excellent shape. Water Street was almost its duplicate, save that there were great seaward gaps where wharves had been. Not a living thing that I see, except for the scattered fishermen on the distant breakwater, and not a sound that I hear, save the lapping of harbour tides and the roar of the falls of the many. The town was getting more and more on my nerves and I looked behind me furiously as I picked my way back over towards the tottering Water Street Bridge. The Fish Street Bridge, according to the sketch, was in ruins. North of the river there were traces of squalid life. Active fish packing houses and Water Street, smoking chimneys and patched roofs here and there, occasional sounds from indeterminate sources and infrequent shambling forms in dismal streets and unpaved lines. "'but I seemed to find this even more oppressive than the southerly desertion. "'For one thing, the people were more hideous and abnormal "'than those near the centre of the town, "'so that I several times evilly reminded of something utterly fantastic, "'which I could not quite place. "'Undoubtedly, the alien strain in Innsmouth Folk "'was stronger here than further inland, "'unless, indeed, the Innsmouth look were a disease rather than a bloodstream, "'in which case this district might be held to harbour the more advanced cases.' One detail that annoyed me was the distribution of the few faint sounds that I heard. They ought naturally to have come wholly from the visibly inhabited houses, yet in reality were often strongest inside the most rigidly boarded-up facades. There were creakings and scurrings and hoarse, doubtful noises, and I thought uncomfortably about the hidden tunnels suggested by the grocery boy. Suddenly, I found myself wondering what the voices of those denizens would be like. I heard no speech so far in this quarter, I was unaccountably anxious not to do so. Pausing only long enough to look at two fine but ruinous old churches at main and Church Streets, I hastened out of that vile waterfront slum. My next logical goal was New Church Green, but somehow or another I could not bear to read past the church in whose basement I had glimpsed the inexplicably frightening form of that strangely disembodied bodied priest or pastor. Besides, the grocery youth had told me the churches, as well as the Order of Degon Hall, were not advisable neighbourhoods for strangers. Accordingly, I kept north along Mean and Martin, then turning inland, crossing Federal Street safely north of the Green, and entering the decayed patrician neighbourhood of Northern Broad, Washington, Lafayette, and Adams Streets. Though these stately old avenues were ill surfaced and unkempt, their elm shaded dignity had not entirely departed mansion after mansion claimed my gaze but most of them decrepit and boarded up amidst neglected grounds but one or two on each street showing signs of occupancy in washington street there were a row of four or five in excellent repair with finely tended lawns and gardens the most sumptuous of these with wide terrace patiers extending back the whole way to lafayette street i took to be the home of old mad marsh the afflicted refinery owner In all these streets, no living thing was visible, and I wondered at the complete absence of cats and dogs from Innsmouth. Another thing which puzzled and disturbed me, even in some of the best-preserved mansions, was the tightly shuttered condition of many third-story and attic windows. Furtiveness and secretiveness seemed universal in this hushed city of alienage and death, and I could not escape the sensation of being watched from ambush on every hand by sly, staring eyes that never shut. I shivered as the cracked stroke of three sounded from a belfry at my left. Too well did I recall the squat church from which these notes came. Following Washington Street towards the river, I now faced a new zone of former industry and commerce, noting the ruins of a factory ahead and seeing others, the traces of the old railway station and covered railway bridge beyond, up on the gorge on my left. The uncertain bridge now before me was posted with a warning sign but I took the risk and crossed again to the south bank where traces of life reappeared. Furtive, shambling creatures stared cryptically in my direction and more normal faces eyed me coldly and curiously. In's mouth was rapidly becoming intolerable and I turned down Payne Street towards the square in the hope of getting some vehicle to take me to Arkham before the still distant starting time of that sinister bus. It was then that I saw the tumble-down fire station on my left and noticed the red-faced, bushy-bearded, watery-eyed old man in nondescript rags who sat on a bench in front of it, talking with a pair of unkempt but not abnormally-looking firemen. This, of course, must be Zadok Gail Allen, the half-crazed, licorice old man whose tales of Oldin's mouth and its shadow were so hideous and incredible. Chapter 3 it must have been some imp of perverse, or some sardonic pull from dark, hidden sources, which made me change my plans as I did. I got long before resolved to limit my observations to architecture alone, and I was even then hurrying towards the square in an effort to get quick transportation out of this festering city of death and decay. But the sight of old Zadok Allen set up new currents in my mind and made me slacken my pace uncertainly. I'd been assured that the old man could do nothing but hint at wild, disjointed, incredible legends, and I'd been warned that the native made it safe to be seen talking to him. Yet the thought of this age witness to the town's decay, with memories going back to the early days of ships and factories, was a lure that no amount of reason could make me resist. After all, the strangest and maddest of myths were often merely symbols or allegories based upon truth. An old Zadok here must have seen everything which went on around Innsmouth for the last 90 years. Curiosity flared up beyond sense and caution, and in my youthful egotism I fancied that I might be able to sift a nucleus of real history from the confused, extravagant outpouring I would probably extract with the aid of raw whiskey. I knew that I could not accost him here and there, for the fireman would surely notice and object. Instead, I reflected... I would prepare by getting some bootleg liquor at a place where the grocery boy had told me it was plentiful. Then I would loaf near the fire station in apparent casualness and following with old Zadok after he'd started in one of his frequent rambles. The youth had said that he was very restless, seldom seen sitting around the station for more than an hour or two at a time. A quart bottle of whiskey was easily, though not cheaply, obtained in the rear of a dingy variety store just off the square in Elliot Street. The dirty looking fellow who waited on me had a touch of the staring Innsmouth look, but was quite civil in his way, being perhaps used to the custom of such convivial strangers, truckmen, gold buyers, and the like, as were occasionally drawn in town. Re entering the square, I saw that luck was with me, for shuffling out of Payne Street around the corner of the Gilman house, I glimpsed nothing less than the tall, lean, tattered form of old Zadok Allen himself. In accordance with my plan, I attracted his attention by brandishing my newly purchased bottle and soon realised that he had begun to shuffle wistfully after me as I turned into Wade Street on my way to the most deserted region I could think of. I was steering my course by the map the grocery boy had prepared and was aiming for the wholly abandoned stretch of southern waterfront which I had previously visited. The only people in sight there had been the fishermen on the distant breakwater and going by a few squares south I could get beyond the range of these finding a pair of seats and some abandoned wharf and being free to question old Zadok unobserved for an indefinite time before I reached Main Street I could hear a faint and wheezy hey mister behind me and I presently allowed the old man to catch up and take copious pulls from the court bottle I began putting out feelers as we walked amidst the omnipresent desolation and crazily tilted rounds but found that the aged tongue did not loosen as quickly as I'd expected at length I saw a grass grown opening towards the sea between crumbling brick walls the weedy lengths of the earth and masonry wharf projecting beyond piles of moss covered stones near the water promised tolerable seats and the scene was sheltered from all possible view by a ruined warehouse on the north here, I thought, was the ideal place for a long secret conversation so I guided my companion down the lane and picked out spots to sit in amongst the mossy stones. The air of death and desertion was ghoulish, and the smell of fish was almost insufferable, but I was resolved to let nothing deter me. About four hours remained for conversation if I were to catch the eight o'clock coach for Arkin, so I began to dole out more liquor to the ancient tippler, meanwhile eating my own frugal lunch. In my donations, I was careful not to overshoot the mark. For I did not wish for Zadok to pass out drunk. But after an hour, his furtive tassonurdity showed signs of disappearing. But much to my disappointment, he still sidetracked my questions about Innsmouth and its shadow haunted past. He would babble of current topics, revealing a wide acquaintance with newspapers and a great tendency to philosophise about the small village. Towards the end of the second hour I feared my quart of whisky would not be enough to produce results and was wondering whether I'd better leave old Zadok and go for more. Just then, however, chance made the opening which my questions had been unable to make and the wheezing ancient's rambling took a turn that caused me to lean forward and listen alertly. My back was towards the fishy-smelling sea but he was facing it and something or another had caused his wandering gaze to light on the low, distant line of Devil Reef then showing plainly and almost fascinatingly above the water. The sight seemed to displease him, for he began a series of weak curses which ended in a confidential whisper and a knowing leer. He bent towards me, took hold of my coat lapel, and hissed out some hints that could not be mistaken. That's where it all began. That cursed place of all wickedness, but the deep water starts. Get a hell. Sheer dropped down to a bottom, no sand and line can take. Old Captain Abed done it. Him that found that Morton's good for him in the South Sea Islands. Everybody was in a bad way them days. Trade falling off, mills losing business, even the new ones. The best of our men folk could have privateering in the War of 1812, our lost with Lizzie bringing up the Ranger's cry. Both of them Gilman Venters. Obed Marsh, he had three ships afloat. The Brigantine, Columbia, Brig Hetty, and Bark, Summer Tree Queen. He was the only one to keep on with the East Indian Pacific trade. Through Martin's Birkenstein, Malay Bride made a veer as late as 28. Nobody was ever like Captain Abed. The old limb Satan. (laughs) I can't mind him telling about 14 parts... And calling all of the folks stupid for going to Christian meetings and bearing their burdens meek and lowly. Says they ought to get better gods like some of the folks in the Indians. Gods as them that bring good fishing in return for sacrifices and really ought answer folks' prayers. Matt Elliot, his first mate, talked a lot too. Only he was aging folks doing any heathen things. Talking about Nile Indies where there were a lot of stone ruins older than anybody knew anything about. Kind of like them and the Carolines, but with the carving of faces that looked like the big statues on Easter Island. There was a little volcanic island near there too, where there were ruins with different carvings, ruins all worn away like they'd been under the sea, with pictures of awful monsters all over them. Well, sir, Matt, he says that the natives around there had all the fish they could catch, Sported bracelets and armlets and head rigs with about a queer amount of gold covered with pitchers and monsters, just like the ones carved over in the ruins on the island. Sort of fish like frogs or frog like fishes that was drawn in all kinds of positions like they were humans. Nobody could get good about what they were on the stuff, and all the other natives wondered how they managed to find fish in plenty when the very next islands over had lean pickings. That he got to wandering too, so did the captain. A bed he noticed. Besides, a lot of handsome folks would just drop out of sight for good for year to year. There weren't that many good old folks around. Also, he thinks some of the folks look queer, even for the Kanukis. It took a bed to get to the truth about them heathens. Don't know how he done it, but he began by trading for the gold-like things that they wore. Asked them where they came from and if they could get more and finally wormed the story out of the old chief. Well, Waleike, they called him. Nobody but a bed would ever believe the old yowler devil. The cap could read folks like they were books. Nobody ever believes me now when I tell him. And I don't suppose you will either, young fella. I'll come to look at you. You have kind of got them sharp reading eyes like a bed had. At this, the old man's whisper grew fainter and I found myself shuddering at the terrible and sincere portentousness of his intonation, even though I knew his tale could be nothing but drunken fantasy. Well, sir, I bet he learnt those things on this earth that most folks never heard about, I wouldn't believe them even if they did hear. It seems that people were sacrificing heaps of their young men, and maidens to some kind of god things that lived under the sea, and getting all kinds of favour in return. They met the things on this little island with the queer ruins. And it seems them awful pictures of the frogfish monsters was supposed to be pictures of these things. Maybe they was the kind of critters that got all the mermaid stories and stuff started. They had all kinds of cities on the sea bottom. And this island was heaved up from there. Seems they were some of the things alive in the stone building when the island came up to the surface. And that's how they got wind of what was drawn there. Made sign talk as soon as they got over being scared and picked up the bargain before long. Then things liked human sacrifices had the meages before but lost track and the upper world forgot them what they'd done to the victims it ain't for me to say I guess a bad one too sharp about asking but it was alright with the heathens because they'd been having a hard time and they were desperate about everything they'd give a certain number of young folks to the see things twice every year may eve and halloween regulars could be also give them some of the carved knickknacks that they made the things agreed to give in return was plenty of fish. They drove them in from all over the sea, and a few gold-like things between them. Well, as I said, the natives met the things on the little islands, going there in canoes with sacrifices, bringing back any of the gold-like jewels as was coming to them. At first, the things did never want to go near to the mainland, but after a time, they came to want to. seems they hankered after mixing with the folks, and having joint ceremonies on those days, May Eve and Halloween. You see, they were able to live in both in and out of the water, but they call amphibians, I guess. And the natives told those folks how to go from other islands that might want to wipe them out, because if they got wind of their being there, but they didn't care much, because they could wipe out the whole broad of humans as they were bothered. That is, as any, they didn't have signs such as on by the old old ones whatever they were but not wanting to bother they'd lay low when anybody visited the island when I came to meeting with them toad looking fishies the natives kind of balked, but finally they learned something as to put a new face on the matter seems that human folks have got kind of a relation to such water beasts that everything alive comes out of the water once and only needs a little change to go back again them things told the locals that of the mixed bloods there'd be children that would look human at first but later more and more would look like the things So finally they tick to the water and they would go down to the mainland down like that and this is the important part young fella them as turned into fish things and went into the water would never die then things never died except that they was killed violent well sir it seems by the time a bad know them islanders they were all full of fish blood from them deep water things when they got old and began to show it, they would keep them hidden until they felt like talking to the water and quitting the place. Some was more tetchy than others, and some never did change quite enough to take to the water. But mostly they turned out just the way them things did. Them, as was born, were the things that changed early. But them was nearly human sometimes dead on the island until they was past 70. Then they'd go down, usually for their trips before that folks that had taken to the water generally came back a good deal to visit, so as a man would often be talking to his own five times great-grandfather, he left the dry island a couple of years before. Everybody got out of the idea of dying, except in the canoe wars with the other islanders, or as sacrifices to the sea gods down below, or from snake bite or plague or some sharp gallowing ailments or something before they could take to the water. It simply looked forward to the kind of change that wasn't a bit horrible after that they thought what they got was well worth it that they'd give it up and I guess Abed kind of came to think the same himself when he chewed over old Waleka's story that was one of the few who hadn't got the fish blood being of a royal line that intermarried with royal lines on other islands Waleka he showed Abed a lot of the rites and incantations as they had to do with the sea things let him see some of the folks of the village that had changed a lot from the human shape somehow or another though he wouldn't let them see one of the regular things from the right amount of the water in the end he gave him a funny kind of thing magic. they made about a lead or something then he said he would bring up fish things from any place in the water where there might be a nest of them the idea was to drop it down with the right kind of prayers and such while I like how his things would scattered all over the world so as anybody could look around find in a nest and bring them up if they wanted. Matt, he didn't like this business at all. I wanted a bed to shut up and get away from the island. The captain was sharp for gain. I found that he could get those gold-like things so cheap that it would pay to make a specialty of them. Things went on that way for 70 years. And a bed got enough of that gold-like stuff to make him start the refinery and wait old rundown fucking mill. He didn't dare sell the pieces like they were, for folks would be all the time asking the questions. All the same, his crews would get a piece of the dispense now and then, and even though they swore to keep quiet, he let his women and folks swear some of the pieces as were more human-like than most. Well, come about thirty-eight, I was seven years old, I bet he found the island people all wiped out between the voyages. "'since the other islanders had got wind of what was going on "'and had took matters into their own hands. "'Suppose they must have had, after all, "'in the old magic signs as the sayings "'what only things that we're afraid of. tell telling what any of them knickies would say "'to get hold of the sea bottom throws up "'at some island with ruins older than deluge. "'Pious cusses these was. "'They didn't leave nothing standing "'on either the main island or the little volcanic island.' "'except what parts of the ruins were too big to knock down. Was on some places there were stones thrown about, like charms, "'with something on them like what you would call a swastika these days. "'Probably them were the old ones' signs. "'Folks all wiped about, no trace of gold-like things, "'and none of the nearby Kinnickies ever breathed a word about the matter. "'Wouldn't even admit that they'd ever been near any people on that island. "'And that naturally hit a bed pretty hard.' seeing as his normal trade it was doing very poor. And it hit the hold of Innsmouth too, because in seafaring days most profited the master of the ship generally profited the crew proportionate. Most of the folks around the town took the hard times as kind of a sheep-like and resigned, but they were in bad shape, because the fishing was Peter and I, and all the mills weren't doing too well. Thence the time of bed he began a cursing at the folks for being dull sheep and praying to a Christian heaven that didn't help them none. He told them he'd known the folks that prayed to gods to give them something that they really need and says a good bunch of men would stand by him. He could maybe get a hold of the certain powers and bring plenty of fish, quite a bit of gold. Of course, them as served on the Sumatry Queen and see the island knowed what he meant and wasn't too anxious to get close to see the things that had hurt tell on. But them as didn't know what was all going about by sweat of all had to say and began to ask him what he could do to set them on the way to faith and could see those results. Here, the old man who had been faltering and mumbling, he then lapsed into a moody and apprehensive silence, glancing nervously over his shoulder and then turning back to stare fascinatedly at the distant black reef. When I spoke to him, he didn't answer, so I knew I would have to let him finish the ball. This insane yarn that I heard interested me profoundly. For a big... Between the drunken ramblings and half-catch words, I fancied there were contained some sort of crude allegory, based upon the strangeness of Innsmouth, and elaborated by an imagination at once creative and full of scraps of exotic legend. Not for a moment did I believe that the tale had any real substantial foundation, but nonetheless the account held a certain hint of genuine terror, if only because it brought references to strange jewels clearly akin to the malign tiara that I'd seen at New Broodport. Perhaps the ornaments had, after all, come from some strange island. And possibly the wild stories were lies of the bygone Abed himself rather than this antique toper. I handed Zadok the bottle, and he drained it right to the last drop. It was a curious thing how he could stand so much whiskey, for not even a trace of the thickness had come into his high, wheezy voice. He licked the nose of the bottle and sipped it into his pocket, then began nodding, and whispering softly to himself. I bent close to catch any articulate words that he might utter, I thought I saw a sardonic smile behind the stained, bushy whiskers. Yes, he was really forming words, and I could grasp a fair proportion of them. Per Matt. Maddie was always aging it. Tried to line up to the folks on his side, and had long talks with the preachers. It was no use they run the congregational parson right out of town. And the Methodist it quick. Never did see resolved but cock, the Baptist person again. Wrath of Jehovah. I was a mighty little critter. But I heard what I heard and I seen what I seen. Dagon and Ashtaroth, Belial and Belzebub, Golden Calf and the islands of Canaan and the Philistines. Babylonian abominations. Mene, mene Upper Brassin. He stopped again, and from the look in his watery blue eyes I feared that he might be close to a stupor after all. But when I gently shook his shoulder, he turned on me with astonishing alertness and snapped shut some of the more obscure phrases. You don't believe me, eh? (laughs) Then just tell me, young fella, why did Captain Abed and twenty-odd folk used to row about Devil Reef in the dead of night and chant things so loud you could hear them all over town when the window's right? Tell me that, eh? then tell me why a bed was always dropping heavy things down into the deep water on the other side of the reef where the bottom shoots down like a cliff floor and you can sound tell me what he did with that funny shaped lead thing jig as well like i gave him eh huh? what do you say boy and what do they all know on mary eve and when again at halloween and why did the new church parsons and fellers that used to be sailors wear them queer robes and cover themselves with gold-like things that a bed brung. Huh? The watery blue eyes were almost savage and maniacal now, and the dirty white beard bristled electrically. Old Zadok probably saw me shrink back for he began to cackle. Are you beginning to see? Maybe you'd like to have been me in them days. When I saw the things at nights and about to see from the collapo top of my house, all I can tell you little pitchers have big ears and I wasn't missing nothing or what was gossiped about Captain Abed and the folks out on the reef how about the night that I took my past ship glass up to the Calapo and seed the reef a bristling thick with shapes that dived off quick soon as the moon raised Abed and the folks were in a dory then shapes they dived off the far side into the deep water and never came up How'd you like to be a little shaver alone up in the cupola and watching the shapes as wasn't having human shapes? The old man was getting hysterical and I began to shiver with a nameless alarm. He laid a gnarled claw on my shoulder and it seemed to me that its shaking was not altogether that of mirth. Suppose one night you'd have seen something heavy, often a bad story beyond the reef, and then learned the next day that a young feller was missing from home. Did anybody see hiding or her of Hill and Gellum again? Did they? And Nick Pierce and Louis Waite and Southwick and Harry Garrison Sheeps talk in sign language with their hands as they had real hands Well sir there was a time that a big head began to get on his feet again Folks began to see three daughters and wearing gold-like things as nobody had ever seen on them before and smoke started coming out of the refinery chimney Other folks was prospering too Fish began to swarm into the harbor fit to kill, and heaven knows what size cargoes we began to ship broad to Newburyport, Narkim, Boston. So it was then that a bed got the old branch railroad put through. Some Kingsport fishermen heard about the catch and came up in sloops, but they was all lost; nobody ever seen them again. And just then our folks organized the Esoteric Order of Dagon, and bought a Masonic hall, often Calvary Commandery for it. Matt Elliot was a mason again and sell him, but he dropped about the side of it just then. Remember, I ain't saying a bed was set on haven things just like there was on that Kaniki Isle. I don't think he aimed at first to do no mixing. No raised, no youngins to tick to the water and turn into fish with eternal life. He wanted them gold things, and was willing to pay heavy, and I guess the others were satisfied for a while. Come in 46, the town done some looking and thinking for itself too many folks missing too much wild preaching at the meeting of a Sunday too much talk about that reef I guess I'd done a bit by telling by selectman Mulberry when I see the kapala there was a party one night as followed Obed's cried right out to the reef and I heard shots between the dories next day Obed and 32 others was in jail with everybody wondering just what was a fit and just what was in charge them that could be holed if anybody could have looked ahead a couple of weeks later when nothing had been thrown into the sea for that long. Zadok so was showing signs of fright and exhaustion and I let him keep silence for a while though glancing apprehensively at my watch. The tide had turned and was coming in now and the sound of the waves seemed to arise him. I was glad of that tide for at high water the fishy smell might not be so bad and again I strained to catch his whispers. That awful night I saw them. I was up in the Capallo. Hordes of them. Swarms of them. All over the reef and swimming up to the harbour in the Manu. God, what happened in the streets of Innsmouth that night? They rattled our doors but Pa wouldn't open. And then he clubbed about the kitchen window with his musket to select men more rain see what he could do. Mounds of the dead and the dying. The shots and the screams. And shouting in old square, in the town square, the New Church Green. The jail thrown open. Proclamation. Treason. Called it the plague when folks came in and found half our people missing. Nobody left them as could survive with a bed and them things or else keep quiet. Nobody ever heard my pan no more. The old man was panting, perspiring profusely. His grip on my shoulder tightened. Everything cleaned up in the morning, but there was traces. A bed he kind of took charge and said things is going to be changed, and others will worship with us in the meantime. In certain houses he's got to entertain guests. They wanted the mix like they'd done with the Kanukis, except for one he didn't feel bound to stop them. Far gone was a bed, just like a crazy man on the subject. He says they'd bring us fish and treasure, and should have heard what they'd hankered after Nothing was to be different on the outside Only we was to keep shy of strangers If we'd known what was good for us We'd all heed to take the oaths of the Dagon. and Later on there was a second and third oaths that some of us took Them as could help special Get special rewards Gold and such No use Balkan For there was millions of them down there They'd rather not start rising and wiping out humankind But if they gave away and they were forced to, they could do a lot towards just that. We didn't have them old charms to cut them off like the folks in the South Seas did, and the Kunikis were never to give away their secrets. Yielded up enough sacrifices and savage knick-knacks and harborage in the town while they wanted it, and they'd let us well enough alone. Wouldn't bother no strangers as might bear tales outside. That is, without they got prying. All in the band of the faithful order of Dagon And the children should never die but go back to Mother Hydra and Father Dagon and what we come to known from them Cthulhu Fatagin Cthulhu Riley Wagun Fatagin Hold's he was fast lapsing into stark raving and I held my breath per old soul to what pitiful depths of hallucination had this liquor plus his hatred of the decay an alienage and disease around him that brought this fertile, imaginative brain. He began to moan now, and tears were coursing down his channeled cheeks down into the depths of his beard. What I have seen since I was fifteen years old. The folks was missing as them killed themselves, and then certain things in Arkham or Ipswich or such places—they were all called crazy, like you're calling me right now. God, what I seen! That it killed me long ago for what I knew. Only I took the first and the second oath to dig on often a bed. So protected unless seen by a jury of them proved that i told things known and deliberately. But I wouldn't take the third oath. I'd have died rather than take that. I got bused around Civil War time when children born around 56 began to grow up. Some of them, that is. And I was afraid. Never did no prying after that awful night. Never see one of... one of... them... Closed in all my life. That is no full-blooded one. I went to war. And if I had any guts or sense that I'd never come back. But settled away from here. The folks wrote me things wasn't so bad. That, I suppose, was because the government draft men was in town after 63. After the war, it was just as bad again. People began to fall off. The mills and shops shut down. Shipping stopped and the harbour choked up. The railroad gave up. But they, they never stopped swimming. and about the river from the cursed reef of Satan and more and more attic windows got boarded up and more and more noises was heard in them houses wasn't supposed to have anybody in them folks outside have their stories about us I suppose you've heard plenty of them seeing what questions you have stories about things that they've seen now and then about that queer jewelry as such comes from nowhere else quite melted up but nothing ever gets definite Nobody will ever believe nothing They call them gold-like things pirate loot and allow the Innsmouth folks to have fur and blood or distempered or something like that Besides them that lives here show off as many strangers as they can and encourage the rest not to get very curious especially around night time Beasts bulk of the critters Horses, mews and mules But when they got automobiles that was alright in 1946, Captain Abed took a second wife that nobody in the town never saw. Some says he didn't want to, but was made to by then, as they'd called them, and had three children by her. Two has disappeared young, but one gal has looked anybody like educated in Europe. Abed finally got her married off by a trick to an Arkham fella, so he didn't suspect nothing. But nobody outside will have anything to do to win folks now. Barnabas Mouse. That runs the refinery now as Abed's grandson by his first wife. But his mother was another one of them that wouldn't be seen outside. Right now Barnabas has almost changed. Can't shut his eyes no more. He's all out of shape. They say he still wears clothes, but he'll tick to the water soon. Maybe he's tried it already. But they do sometimes go down for little spells before they go down for good. And i have been seen about in public for now on twenty years. Don't know much about how his poor wife will fill. She came from Ipswich, and nearly lynched Barnabas when he courted her a fifty-odd year ago. In bed, he died in seventy-eight, and all the next generation is gone now. For first wife's children's dead and the rest, God knows. The sound of the incoming tide was now very insistent, and little by little it seemed to change the old man's mood from maudlin tearfulness to watchfulness fear. He would pause now and then to renew the nervous glances over his shoulder or out right towards the reef. And despite the wild absurdity of his tale, he couldn't help but begin to share his vague apprehensiveness. Zadok now grew shriller and seemed to be trying to whip up his courage with louder speech. Hey, you, why didn't you say something? How'd you like to be living in a town like this with everybody rotten and dying and boarded up monsters, crawling and bleeding? barking and hopping around black cellars and attics every which way you turn hmm how'd you like to hear the howling night after from what the churches of the order of Dagon Hall you know what's doing the howling how'd you like to hear what comes from that awful reef every May Eve and howlmas hey do you think this old man's crazy well sir let me tell you not even the worst Sadoc was really screaming now and the mad frenzy of his voice disturbed me more than I cared to own. Curse ye. Don't set that to staring at me with them eyes. I tell about Marsh he's in hell, and he's got to stay there. In hell, I said. Can't get me. Ain't done nothing, nor told nobody nothing. Oh, you young fella? Well, even if I had told nobody nothing yet, I'm a-going to now. You just sit still and listen to me, boy. This is what I never told nobody. I says I didn't get to do the prying earlier that night, but I've found things that are just the same. You want to know what the real horror is, boy? Well, it's this. It ain't what them fish devils have done, but it's what they're going to do. They're bringing things up, and what they're putting into those houses. They've been doing it for years, and they've been slacking up lately. Them houses north of the river, between water and main streets, full of them. Them devils and what they brunk. And when they get ready, and I say, when they get ready, have you ever heard tell of a Shoggoth? Tell me. I tell you things that what them things ought to be. I see them one night. The hideous suddenness and inhuman frightfulness of the old man's shriek almost made me faint. His eyes looking past me through the malodorous sea, positively starting from his head, while his face was a mask of fear worthy of Greek tragedy. His bony claw dug monstrously into my shoulder and he made no motion as to turn my head to look at whatever he had glimpsed. There was nothing that I could see only the incoming tide with perhaps one set of ripples more local than the long flung line of breakers. But now Zadok was shaking me and I turned back to watch the melting of that near frozen face into the chaos of twitching eyes and mumbling gums. Presently his voice came back albeit as a trembling whisper. Get out of here. Get out of here. They've seen us. Get out for your life. Don't wait for nothing. They know now. Just run for it. Quick, and get out of this town. Another heavy wave dashed against the loosening masonry of the bygone wharf. I changed the mad ancient's whisper to another inhuman and blood-curdling scream. Before I could recover from my scattered wits, he had relaxed his clutch on my shoulder and dashed wildly inland towards the street, railing northwards along the ruined warehouse wall. I glanced back at the sea, but there was nothing there. And when I reached Walter Street and looked down or towards the north, there was no remaining trace of Zadok Allen. CHAPTER four I can hardly describe the mood in which I was left by this harrowing episode. An episode at once mad and pitiful, grotesque and terrifying. Grocery boy had prepared me for it, yet the reality left me nonetheless bewildered and disturbed. Purile though the story was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror had communicated to me a mounting unrest which joined with my earlier sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. Later, I might sift the tale and extract some nucleus of historic allegory, but just now I wished to put it out of my head. The hour had grown Paris late My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left Town Square at 8. So I tried to give my thoughts as neutral and practical a cast as possible. Meanwhile, walking rapidly through the deserted streets, gaping roofs and leaning houses, towards the hotel where I checked my valets and would find my bus. Through the golden light of late afternoon, gave the ancient roofs and decrepit chimneys an air of mystic loveliness and peace. I could not help but glancing over my shoulder now and then. I would surely be very glad to get out of the malodorous, fear shadowed Innsmouth, and wish there were some other vehicle other than the bus driven by that sinister-looking fellow sergeant. Yet, I did not hurry too precipitously, for there were architectural details worth viewing at every silent corner, and I could easily, I calculated, cover the necessary distance in half an hour. Studying the grocery use map and seeking a route I had not traversed before, I chose Marsh Street instead of State for my approach to Town Square. Near the corner of Fall Street, I began to see scattered groups of furtive of whisperers, and when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all of the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman House. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, unwinking eyes looked oddly at me, as I claimed my valets in the lobby, and I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. The bus, rather early, rattled in with three passengers somewhat before eight, and an evil looking fellow on the sidewalk muttered a few indistinguishable words to the driver. Sergeant threw out of a meal bag and a roll of newspapers, and then entered the hotel, while the passengers, the same men whom I'd seen arrive at a Newbury port that morning, shambled to the sidewalk and exchanged some faint guttural words with a loafer in a language I could have sworn was not English. I boarded the empty coach and took the same seat as I'd taken before, but was hardly settled before Sergeant reappeared and began mumbling in a throaty voice of peculiar repulsiveness. I was, it appeared, in very bad luck. There'd been something wrong with the engine, despite the excellent time made from Newburyport, and the bus could not complete the journey back to Arkin. No, it could not possibly be repaired that night. Nor was there any other way of getting transportation out of Innsmouth, either at Arkham or elsewhere. Sergeant was sorry, but I would have to stop over at the Gilman. Probably the clerk would make the price easy for me, but there was nothing else to do. Almost dazed by this sudden obstacle, and violently dreading the fall of night in this decaying, half-unlighted town, I left the bus and re-entered the hotel lobby. Where the sullen, queer looking night clerk told me that I could have room 420 in, the top of the floor, large but without running water, for a dollar. Despite what I'd heard of this hotel in Newburyport, I signed the register, paid my dollar, let the clerk take my valise, and followed the sour, solitary attendant up the three creaking flights of stairs, past dusty corridors which seemed wholly devoid of life. My room, a dismal, Rear one with two windows and a bare cheap furnish overlooked a dingy courtyard, otherwise hemmed in by low, deserted brick blocks. Commanded a view of decrepit, westward stretching roofs with a marshy countryside beyond. At the end of the corridor was a bathroom, a discouraging relic with ancient marble bowl, tin tub, faint electric light, and musty wooden pound lane all along with the plumbing fixtures. It being still daylight, I descended to the square and looked around for a dinner of some sort, noticing as I did that some strange glances I received from the unwholesome loafers. Since the grocery was now closed, I was forced to patronize the restaurant that I shunned before. A stooped, narrow headed man with staring unwinking eyes, and a flat nosed wench with unbelievably thick, clumsy hands being in attendance. The service was all of the counter type and it relieved me to find that much was evidently served from cans and packages. A bowl of vegetable soup with crackers was enough for me, and I soon headed back from my cheerless room at the Gilman, getting an evening paper and a fly-speckled magazine from the evil visage clerk at the rickety stand beside his desk. As twilight deepened, I turned on one feeble electric bulb over the cheap iron frame bed and tried as best as I could to continue the reading I'd begun felt it advisable to keep my mind wholesomely occupied, for it would not do to brood over the abnormalities of this ancient, blight-shadowed town while I was still within its borders. The insane yarn I'd heard from the aged drunkard did not promise very pleasant dreams, and I felt that I must keep the image of this wild, watery eyes as far as possible from my imagination. Also, I must not dwell on what the factory inspector had told the new Breitport ticket agent about the Gilman House, and the voices of its nocturnal tenants. Not on that, nor on the face beneath the tiara in the black church doorway, face for whose horror my conscious mind could not account. It would perhaps have been easier to keep my thoughts from the disturbing topics had the room not been so gruesomely musty. As it was, the lethal mustiness blended hideously with the town's general fishy odour and persistently focused one's fancy on death and decay. Another thing that disturbed me was the absence of a bolt on the door of my room. One had been there, as Mark clearly showed, but there were signs of recent removal. No doubt that it had become out of order, like so many other things in this decrepit edifice. In my nervousness, I looked around and discovered a bolt on the clothes press, which seems to be of the exact same size, judging from the marks as the one formerly on the door. To gain a partial relief from the general tension, I busied myself by transferring this hardware to the vacant place with the aid of a handy three-in-one device including a screwdriver which I kept on my keyring. The bolt fitted perfectly and I was somewhat relieved when I knew that I could shoot it firmly upon retiring. Not that I had any real apprehension of its need but that any symbol of security was welcome in its environment to this kind. There were adequate bolts on the two lateral doors to the connecting rooms and these I proceeded to fasten too. I did not undress, but decided to read till I was sleepy and then lie down with only my coat, collar and shoes off. Taking a pocket flashlight from my valise, I placed it in my trousers so that I could read my watch if I woke up later in the dark. Drowsiness, however, did not come. And when I stopped to analyze my thoughts, I found to my disquiet that I was really unconsciously listening for something. Listening for something which I dreaded but could not mean. That inspector's story must have worked on my imagination more deeply than I suspected. Again, I tried to read, but found that I made no progress. After a time, I seemed to hear the stairs and corridors creak at intervals as if with footsteps, and wondered if the other rooms were beginning to fill up. There were no voices, however, and it struck me that there was something subtly furtive about the creaking. I did not like it, and debated whether I would better to try to sleep at all. This town had some queer people, and there had been undoubtedly been several disappearances. Was this one of those inns where the travellers were slain for their money? Surely I had no look of excessive prosperity. Or were there townsfolk really so resentful about curious visitors? I had my obvious sightseeing, with its frequent map consultations, aroused unfavourable at notice? It occurred to me that I must be in a highly nervous state to let a few random creakings set me off speculating in this fashion. But I regretted nonetheless that I was unarmed. At length, feeling a fatigue which had nothing of drowsiness in it, I bolted this newly outfitted hall door, turned off the light and threw myself down on the hard, uneven bed. Coat, collar, shoes and all. In the darkness, every faint noise of the night seemed magnified. "'and a flood of doubly unpleasant thoughts swept over me. "'I was sorry I'd put out the light, "'yet was too tired to rise and turn it on again. "'Then, after a long, dreary interval "'and prefaced by a fresh creaking of stairs and corridor, "'there came a soft, damnably unmistakable sound, "'which seemed like a malign fulfilment of all my apprehensions. "'Without the least shadow of a doubt, "'the lock of my door was being tried. "'Cautiously.' furatively tentatively with a key my sensations upon recognizing this sound of actual peril was perhaps less rather than more tumultuous because of my previous vague fears i had been albeit without definite reason instinctively already on my guard and this was to my advantage in the new and real crisis whatever it might turn out to be Nevertheless, the change in the menace from vague premonition to immediate reality was a profound shock. It fell upon me with the force of a genuine blow. It never once occurred to me that the fumbling might be a mere mistake. The malign purpose was all I could think of, and I kept deathly quiet, awaiting the would be intruder's next move. After a time, the cautious rattling ceased, and I heard the room to the north entered with a pass key. Then the lock of the connecting door to my room was softly tried. The bolt held, of course, and I heard the floor creak as the prowler left the room. After a moment, there came another soft rattling, and I knew that the room to the south of me was being entered. Again, I heard the trying of the bolted connecting door, and again a receding creaking. This time, the creaking went along the corridor, down the stairs. So I knew that the prowler had realized that the bolted condition on my doors and was given up on their attempt for a greater or lesser time. As the future would show, the readiness with which I fell into plan of action proves that I must have been subconsciously fearing some menace, and considering possible avenues of escape for ours. From the first, I felt that an unseen fumbler meant the danger not to be met with or dealt with, but only to be fled from as precipitately as possible. The one thing to do was to get out of that hotel alive as quickly as I could, and through some channel other than the front stairs in the lobby. Rising softly and throwing my flashlight on the switch, I sought the light bulb over my bed in order to choose and pocket some belongings for a swift, valdez-first flight. Nothing, however, happened, and I saw that the power had been shut off. Clearly, some cryptic evil movement was afoot on a large scale, but just what I could not say. As I stood pondering with my hand on the now useless switch, I heard a muffling creaking on the floor below. I thought I could barely distinguish voices in conversation. A moment later, I felt less sure that the deeper sounds were voices, since the apparent hoarse barking and loose syllable croakings bore so little resemblance to recognized human speech. Then I thought with renewed force of what the factory inspector had heard in the night in this mouldering, pestilial building. Having filled my pockets with the flashlight's aid, I put on my hat and tiptoed to the windows to consider chances of descent. Despite the state's safety regulations, there was no fire escape on this side of the hotel, and I saw that my windows commanded only a sheer three-storey drop to the cobbled courtyard. On the left and right, however, some ancient brick business blocks abutted on the hotel, their slant roofs coming up to a reasonable jumping distance from my four-storey level. To reach either of these lines of buildings, I would have to be in a room two doors from my own one case on the north and then the other on the south, and my mind instantly set to work calculating what chances I had of making the transfer. I could not, I decided, risk an emergence into the corridor, where my footsteps would surely be heard, where the difficulties of entering the desired room would be insuperable. My progress, if it was to be made at all, would have to be through the less solidly built connecting doors of the rooms, the locks and bolts of which I would have to force violently using my shoulder as a battering ram, whatever they were set against me. This I thought would be possible owing to the rickety nature of the house and its fixtures, but I realised I could not do it noiselessly. I would have to count on sheer speed and the chance of getting to a window before any hostile forces became coordinated enough to open the right door towards me with a pass key. My own outer door I reinforced by pushing the bureau against it. Little by little, in order to make a minimum of sound. I perceived that my chances were very slender and were fully prepared for any calamity. Even getting to another roof would not solve the problem, for there it would then remain the task of reaching the ground and escaping from the town. One thing in my favour was the deserted and ruinous state of the abutting buildings, and the number of skylights keeping blackly open in each and row. Gathering from the Grocery Boys map, the best route out of town was southwards. I glanced first at the connecting door on the south side of the room. It was designed to open in my direction. Hence I saw, after drawing the bolt and finding other fastenings in place, it was not a favourable one for forcing. Accordingly, abandoning it as a route, I cautiously moved the bedstead against it to hamper any attack from which might be made on me later from the next door. The door from the north was hung to open away from me, and this, through a test proved to be locked or bolted from the other side, I knew must be my route. If I could gain the roofs on the buildings in the Payne Street and descend successfully to ground level, I might perhaps be able to dart through the courtyard and the adjacent or opposite buildings to Washington or Bates, or else emerge in pain and edge or run southwards into Washington. In any case... I would aim to strike Washington somehow and get quickly out of the Tanscar region. My preference would be to avoid pain, since the fire station there would be open all night. As I thought of these things, I looked out towards the squalid sea of decaying roofs below me. Now brightened by the beams of the moon, not much passful. On the right, the black ash of the river gorge clothed the panorama, abandoned factories and railway station clinging barnacle like to its sides. Beyond it, the rusted railway and the roly road led off through a flat, marshy terrain, dotted with inlets of higher and drier, scrub-grown land. On the left, the creek-threaded countryside was near, the narrow road dips which gleaming white in the moonlight. I could not see from my side of the hotel the southwards route towards Arkham from which I determined to take. I was irresolutely speculating on when I'd better attack the northwards door and then how I could at least audibly manage it, when I noticed that the vague noises underfoot had given place to a fresh and heavier creaking of the stairs. A wavering flicker of light showed through my transom, and the boards of the corridor began to groan with a ponderous load. Muffled sounds of possible vocal origin approached, and at length a firm knock came at my outer door. For a moment I simply held my breath and waited. Eternity seemed to elapse and the nauseous, fishy odour of my environment seemed to mount suddenly and spectacularly. Then the knocking was repeated, continuously, and with growing insistence. I knew that the time for action had come, and forthwith drew the bolt of the northwards connecting door, bracing myself for the task of battering it open. The knocking waxed louder, and I hoped that in volume would cover the sound of my efforts. At last beginning my escape, I lunged again and again at the thin panelling with the light left shoulder, heedless of shock or pain. The door resisted even more than I anticipated, but I did not give in, and all the while the clamour at the other door increased. Finally the connecting door gave, but with such a crash that I knew those outside must have heard. Instantly the outside knocking became a violent battery, while keys sounded ominously in the hall doors of the rooms on both sides of me. Rushing through the newly opened connection I succeeded in bolting the northerly hall door before the lock could be turned. But even as I did so I heard the hall door of the third room the one whose window I had hoped to reach the roof below being tried with a pass key. For an instant I felt absolute despair since my trapping in the chamber with no window egress seemed complete. A wave of almost abnormal horror swept over me and invested with a terrible but unexplainable singularity the flashlight dimmed dust prints made by the intruder who had lately tried my door from this room. Then with a dazed automatism which persisted despite the hopelessness I made for the next connecting door and performed the blind motion of pushing it in an effort to get through and, granting that the fastenings might be provisionally intact as the second room, bolt the whole door beyond before the lock could be turned from the outside. Sheer fortunate chance gave me my reprieve for the connecting door before me was not only unlocked but actually ajar. In a second I was through, and had my right knee and shoulder against a hull door which was visibly opening inward. My pressure took the opener off guard, for the thing shut as I pushed, so that I could slip the well-conditioned bolt as I had done with the other door. As I gained this respite I heard the battering at the two other doors had beat, while a confused clatter came from the connecting door I'd shielded with the bedstead. Evidently, the bulk of my assailants had entered the southerly room and were massing in a lateral attack. But at the same moment, a pass key sounded in the next door to the north, and I knew that a nearer peril was at hand. The northwards connecting door was wide open, but there was no time to think about checking the already turning lock in the hall. All I could do was shut and bolt the open connecting door, as well as its mate on the opposite side, pushing a bedstead against one and a bureau against the other, and moving a washstand in front of the hall door. I must, I saw, trust to such makeshift barriers to shield me till I could get out the window and onto the roof of the Pean Street block. But even in this acute moment, my chief horror was something apart from the immediate weakness of my defences. I was shuddering because not one of my pursuers, despite some hideous pantings, gruntings, and subdued barkings at odd intervals, was uttering an unmuffled or intelligible vocal sound. As I moved the furniture and rushed towards the windows I heard a frightful scurrying across the corridor towards the room north of me and perceived that the southwards battering had ceased. Plainly, most of my opponents were about to concentrate against the feeble connecting door, which they knew must open directly to me. Outside, the moon played on the ridge pole of the block below, and I saw that the jump must be desperately hazardous because of the steep surface on which I must land. Surveying my conditions, I chose the more southerly of the two windows as my avenue of escape, planning to land on the inner slope of the roof and make for the nearest skyline. Once inside one of the decrepit brick structures, I would have to reckon with the pursuit, but I hoped to descend and dodge in and out of yawning doorways along the shadowed courtyards, eventually getting to Washington Street and slipping out of town towards the south. The clatter at the northerly connecting door was now terrific and I saw that the weak paddling was beginning to splinter. Obviously, the besiegers had brought some ponderous object into play as a battering ram. The bedstead, however, still held firm, so I at least had a faint chance of making good my escape. I opened the window and then noticed that it was flanked by heavy velour draperies suspended by a pole by brass strings, and also that there was a large projecting catch for the shutters on the exterior. Seeing a possible means of avoiding the dangerous jump, I yanked at the hangings and brought them down, pole and all then quickly hooking off two of the rings in the shutter catch and flinging the drapery outside the heavy folds reached fully to the abutting roof and I saw that the rings and catch would likely be able to bear my weight so, climbing out of the window and down the improvised rope ladder I left behind me for the ever morbid and horror infested fabric of the Gilman house I landed safely on the loose slates of the steep roof succeeded in gaining the gaping black skylight without a slit. Glancing up at the window I had left, I observed it was still dark. Though far across the crumbling chimneys to the north, I could see the lights ominously blazing in the order of Dagon Hall, the Baptist Church, and the Congregational Church, which I had recalled so shiveringly. There had seemed to be no one in the courtyard below, and I would hoped there would be a chance to get away before the spreading of a general alarm. Flashing my pocket lamp in the skylight, I saw that there were no steps down. The distance was slight, however, so I clambered over the brink and dropped, striking a dusty floor littered with crumbling boxes and barrels. The place was ghoulish looking, but I was past minding such impressions and made at once for the staircase revealed by my flashlight. After a hasty glance at my watch, it showed the hour to be 2 am. The steps creaked, but seemed tolerably sound and I raced past the barn-like sound second story to the ground floor. The desolation was complete, and only the echoes answered my footfalls. At length, I reached the lower hall at one end, in which I saw a faint luminous rectangle marking the ruined pane Street doorway. Heading the other way, I found the black door also open, and darted out and down five stone steps to the grass-grown cobblestones of the courtyard. The moon's beams did not reach down here, but I could just see my way across without using the flashlight. Some of the windows on the Gilman House side were faintly glowing and I thought I heard confused sounds within. Walking softly over to the Washington Street side I perceived several open doorways and chose the nearest as my route out. The hallway inside was black and when I reached the opposite end I saw that the street door was wedged immovably shut. Resolved to try another building I groped my way back towards the courtyard but stopped short when close to the doorway. For out of the open door to the Gilman House a large crowd of doubtful shapes was pouring lanterns bobbing in the darkness and horrible croaking voices exchanging low cries on what was certainly not English. The figures moved uncertainly and I realised to my relief that they did not know where I'd gone but for all that that sent a shiver of horror through my frame. Their figures were indistinguishable their crouching shambling gate was abnormally repellent worst of all I perceived that one figure was strangely robed, and unmistakably surrounded by a tall tiara of the design altogether too familiar as the figures spread throughout the courtyard I felt my fears increase I suppose I could find no egress from this building on the street side the fishy odour was detestable and I wondered if I could stand it without fainting Again, groping towards the street, I opened the door off the hall, came upon an empty room with closely shuttered but sashless windows, and in another moment I climbed outside and was carefully closing the aperture in the original manner. I was now on Washington Street, and for the moment saw no living thing or any light save that of the moon. From several directions in the distance, however, I could hear the sound of hoarse cries, of footsteps, and of a curious kind of patterning which did not quite sound like footsteps. Plainly, I had no time to lose. The points of the compass were clear to me, and I was glad that all of the lights were turned off, as is often the custom on strongly moonlit nights in unprosperous rural regions. Some of the sounds came from the south, yet I retained my design of escaping in that direction. There would, I know, be plenty of deserted doorways to shelter me, in case I met any person or group who looked like the pursuers. I walked rapidly, softly, and close to the ruined houses. While hatless and dishevelled after my arduous climb, I did not look especially noticeable, and stood a good chance of passing unheeded if forced to encounter any casual wayfarer. At Bates Street, I drew into a yawning vestibule, while two shambling figures crossed in front of me, but was soon on my way again and approaching the open space where Elliot Street obliquely crosses Washington at the intersection of South. Though I'd never seen this place, it looked dangerous to me on the grocery use map, since Moonlight would have free play there. There was no trying to evade it, for any alternative course would involve detours of possibly disastrous visibility and delaying effect. The only thing to do was to cross it boldly and openly, imitating the typical shamble of the Innsmouth folk as best as I could, and trusting that no one, or at least no pursuer of mine, would be there. Just how fully the pursuit was organised, and indeed just what its purpose might be, I could form no idea. There seemed to be unusual activity in the town, but I judged that the news of my escape from the Gilman had not yet spread. I would, of course, soon have to shift from Washington to some other southward street, for that party from the hotel would doubtless be after me. I must have left dust prints in that last old building, revealing how I gained the street. The open space was, as I expected, strongly moonlit, and I saw the remains of a park-like, iron-reeled green in its centre. Fortunately, no one was about, though a curious sort of buzz or roar seemed to be increasing in the direction of the town square. South Street was very wide, leading directly down a slight declivity to the waterfront and commanding a long view out to sea, and I hoped that no one would be glancing up at it from afar as I crossed the bright moonlight. My progress was unimpeded and no fresh sound arose to hint that I'd been spied. Glancing about me, I involuntarily let my pace slacken for a moment to take in the sight of the sea, gorgeous in its burning moonlight at the street's end. Far beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef and I glimpsed it and I could not help but think of all of the hideous legends that I'd heard in the last 24 hours. Legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw the intermittent flashes of light on the distant reef. They were definite and unmistakable, and awakened in my mind a blind horror beyond all rational proportion. My muscles tightened for panic flight, held in only by a certain unconscious caution and a half-hypnotic fascination. And to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty couple of the Gilman House, which loomed up in the northeast behind me, a series of anaglous, though differently spaced gleams which could be nothing less than an answering signal. Controlling my muscles and realizing afresh how plainly visible I was, I resumed my brisker and feignedly chandelier pace, though keeping my eyes on that hellish and ominous reef as long as the opening of South Street gave me a seaward view. The whole proceeding meant, I could not imagine, unless it involved some strange rite connected with Devil Reef, or unless some party had landed from a ship on that sinister rock. I now bent to the left around the ruinous green, still gazing towards the ocean as it blazed in the spectral summer moonlight and watching the cryptical flashing of those nameless, unexplainable beacons. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne upon me, the impression which destroyed my last vestige of self-control and sent me running frantically southwards past the yawning black doorways and officially staring windows of that deserted nightmare street. For a closer glance, I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were far from empty. They were alive with a teeming horde of sheep swimming inwards towards the town, and even at the vast distance and single moment of perception could tell that the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. My frantic running ceased before I had covered a block, for at my left began to hear something like the hue and cry of organized pursuit. There were steps and guttural sounds, and a rattling motor wheezed south along Federal Street. In a second, all my plans were utterly changed for the southward highway were blocked ahead of me. I must clearly find another egress from Innsmouth. I paused and drew into a gaping doorway, reflecting how lucky I was to have the, uh, the moonlit open space before the pursuers came down the parallel street. The second reflection was less comforting. Since the pursuit was down another street, it was plain that the party was not following me directly. It had not seen me, but was simply obeying the general plan of cutting off my escape. This, however, implied that all the roads leading out of Innsmouth were similarly patrolled, for the people could not have known what route I intended to take. If this were so, I would have to make my retreat across country away from any road. But how could I do that in view of the marshy and creek-riddled nature of all the surrounding region? For a moment, my brain reeled, both from sheer hopelessness and from a rapid increase in the omnipresent fishy odour. Then I thought of the abandoned railway to Rowley, where a solid line of ballasted, weed-grown earth still stretched off to the northwest from the crumbling station on the edge of the river gorge. There was just a chance that the townsfolk would not think of that, since this briar-choked desertion made it half impassable and the unlikeliness of all avenues for a fugitive to choose. I'd seen it clearly from my hotel window, and knew about how it lay. Most of its earlier length was uncomfortably visibly from the Rowley Road and from the high places in the town itself but one could perhaps crawl inconspicuously through the undergrowth. At any rate, it would form my only chance of deliverance and there was nothing to do but try it. Drawn inside the hall of my deserted shelter I once more consulted the grocery boy's map with the aid of the flashlight. The immediate problem was how to reach the ancient railway and then I saw that the safest course was ahead to Babson Street, then west to Lafayette. There, edging round, but not crossing an open space homogenous to the one that I'd traversed, and subsequently back northwards and westwards in a zigzagging line through Lafayette, Bates, Adams and Bank Streets, the latter skirting the River Gorge, to the abandoned and dilapidated station that I'd seen from my window. My reason for going ahead to Babson was that I wished neither to recross the earlier open space in order to begin my westward course along the cross street, as broad as south. Starting once more, I crossed the street to the right-hand side in order to edge round Balpson as inconspicuously as possible. Noises still continued in Federal Street, and as I glanced behind me I thought I saw a gleam of light near the building through which I'd escaped. Anxious to leave Washington Street, I broke into a quiet dog-trot, trusting to luck not to encounter any observing eye. Next to the corner of Babson Street I saw to my alarm that one of the houses was still inhabited as attested by curtains in the window but there were no lights within and I passed without disaster. In Babson Street which crossed Federal and might thus reveal me to the searchers I clung as closely as possible to the sagging, uneven buildings twice pausing in the doorway as the noises behind me momentarily increased. The open space ahead shone wide and desolate under the moon but my route would not force me to cross it. During my second pause, I began to detect a fresh distribution of vague sounds. Upon looking cautiously out from a cover beheld, a motor car darting across the open space, bound outward along Elliott Street, which there intersects both Babson and Lafayette. As I watched, choked by a sudden rise in the fishy odour after a short abatement, I saw a band of uncouth. Crouching shapes, loping and shambling in the same direction, I knew that this must be the party guarding the Ipswich Road, since that highway forms an extension of Elliot Street. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes, and one wore a peaked diadem, which glistened whitely in the moonlight. The gait of this figure was so odd that it sent a shiver through me, for it seemed to me that the creature was almost hopping. When the last of the band was out of sight, I resumed my progress darting around the corner into Lafayette Street and crossing Elliot very hurriedly, lest the stragglers of the party be still advancing along that thoroughfare. I did hear some croaking and clattering sounds far off towards Town Square, but accomplished the passage without disaster. My greatest dread was in recrossing Broad and Moonlit South Street, with its seaward view, and I had to nerve myself for the ordeal. Someone might easily be looking, Impossible Elliott Street stragglers could not fail to glimpse me from either of the two points. At the last moment I decided I'd better slacken my trot and make the crossing before in the shambling gate as an average insmith native. When the view of the water again opened out, this time on my right, I was half determined not to look at all. I could not, however, resist but cast a sidelong glance as I carefully and imitatively shambled towards the protecting shadows ahead. There was no ship visible, and I'd half expected there would be. Instead, the first thing which caught my eye was that of a small rowboat pulling in towards the abandoned wharves and laden with some bulky, tarpaulin-covered object. Its rowers, though distinctly and indistinctively seen, were of an especially repellent aspect. Several swimmers were still discernible, while on the far black reef I could see a faint and steady glow, unlike the winking beacon visible from before, and of a curious colour which I could not precisely identify. Above the slant roofs ahead and to the right there seemed the tall cupola of the Gilman House that was completely dark. The fishy odour, dispelled for a moment by some merciful breeze, now closed in again with maddening intensity. I had not quite crossed the street when I heard a muttering band advancing across Washington from the north. As they reached the broad open space where I had first led my disquieting glimpse of the moonlit water, I could see them plainly only a block away, I was horrified by the bestial abnormality of their faces, and the dog like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground while another figure, robed and tiared, seemed to be progressing in an almost hopping fashion. I judged this party to be the one that I'd seen at Gilman's Courtyard, the one, therefore, most closely on my tail. As some of the figures turned to look in my direction, I was transfixed with fright, yet managed to preserve the casual, shambling gait that I assumed. To this day, I do not know whether or not they saw me. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them for they passed on along the moonlit space without varying their course, meanwhile croaking and jabbering in some hateful guttural patois that I could not identify. Once more in shadow, I resumed my former dog-trot past the leaning and decrepit houses that stared blankly into the night. Having crossed to the western sidewalk, I rounded the nearest corner into Bates Street, where I kept close to the buildings of the southern side. I passed two homes showing signs of habitation, one of which had faint lights in the upper rooms, yet met with no obstacle. As I turned into Adam Street, I felt measurably safer, but received a shock when a man reeled out of the dark doorway ahead of me. He proved, however, too hopelessly drunk to be a menace, so that I reached the dismal ruins of the Bank Street warehouses in safety. No one was stirring in the dead street beside the river gorge, and the roar of the waterfalls quite drowned my footsteps It was a long dog-trot to the round station and the great brick warehouse walls around me seemed somehow more terrifying than the fronts of the private houses At last I saw the ancient, arcaded station or what was left of it and made directly for the tracks that started from its farther end The rails were rusty but mainly intact and not more than half the ties had rotted away Walking or running on such a surface was very difficult, but I did my best, and on the whole made very fair time. For some distance, the line kept on around the gorgeous brink, but at length I reached the long covered bridge where it crossed the chasm at the sea height. The condition of this bridge would determine my next step. If humanly possible, I would use it, and if not, I would have to risk more street wandering and take the nearest intact highway bridge. The vast barn-like length of the old bridge gleamed spectrally in the moonlight and I saw that the ties were safe for at least a few feet within. Entering, I began to use my flashlight. I was almost knocked down by the cloud of bats that flapped past me. Almost halfway across there was a perilous gap in the ties which I feared for a moment would halt me, but in the end I risked a desperate jump which fortunately succeeded. I was glad to see the moonlight again when I emerged from that macabre tunnel. The old tracks crossed the river street at grade and at once veered off into a region increasingly rural and with less and less of by abhorrent fishy odour. Here, the dense growth of the weeds and briars hindered me and cruelly tore at my clothes, but I was nonetheless glad that they were there to give me concealment in case of peril. I knew that much of my route must be visible from the rolly road. The marshy region began very shortly, with a single track on the low, grassy embankment where the weedy growth was somewhat thinner. Then came a sort of island, of higher ground, where the line passed through a shallow, open-cut choked with bushes and brambles. I was very glad of this partial shelter, since at this point the Rowley Road would be uncomfortably near according to my window view. At the end of the cut, it would cross the track and swerve off to a safer distance, but meanwhile, I must be exceedingly careful. I was, by this time, thankfully certain that the railway itself was not patrolled. Just before entering the cut, I glanced behind me, but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of the decaying in its mouth gleamed lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight, and I thought of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice and held me immobile for a second. What I saw, or fancied I saw, was a disturbing suggestion of the undulant motion far to the south. A suggestion which made me conclude that a very large horde must be pouring out of the city, along the level of Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail. But I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much, and glistened too brightly in the rays of the now western moon. There was a suggestion of Santé, though the wind was blowing the other way. A suggestion of bestial scraping and bellowing even worse than the muttering of the parties that I'd lately overheard. All sorts of unpleasant conjectures conjured in my mind. I thought of those very extreme Minsmouth types said to be hidden in crumbling, sentried warrens under the waterfront. I thought too of the nameless swimmers that I'd seen, counting the parties so far glimpsed, as well of those presumably crossing over roads the number of my pursuers must be strangely large for a town as depopulated as Innsmouth. Whence could come the dense personnel of such a column as I now beheld? Did these ancient, unplanned warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? Who were they? Why were they here? And as such a column of them was scarring the Ipswich Road, Would the patrols of other roads be likewise augmented? I'd entered the bush-grown cut was struggling along at a very slow pace when that damnable fishy older again waxed dominant. The wind suddenly changed eastward, so that it blew inward from the sea and over the town. It must have, I concluded, since I now began to hear shocking guttural murmurs from that hitherto silent direction. There was another sound too a kind of wholesale colossal flopping, pattering, which somehow called up images of the most detestable sort. It made me think illogically of that unpleasantly undulating column on the far-off Ipswich Road. And then, both stench and sounds grew stronger, so that I paused, shivering and grateful for the cut's protection. It was here, I recalled, that Rowley Road drew so close to the old railway before crossing westward and diverging. Something was coming along that road I must lie low till this passage and vanishment into the distance Thank heaven these creatures employed no dogs for tracking though perhaps that would have been impossible amidst the omnipresent regional odor Crouched in bushes of that sandy cleft I felt reasonably safe even though I knew the searchers would have to cross the track in front of me not much more than a hundred yards away I'd be able to see them but they could not except by a malign miracle See me. All at once I began dreading to look at them as they passed. I saw the close moonlit space which they would surge by, and had curious thoughts about the irredeemable pollution of that place. They would perhaps be the worst of all Innsmouth types, something one would not care to remember. The stench waxed overpowering, and the noises swelled to bestial babble of croaking, baying, "'and barking without the least suggestion of human speech. "'Were these indeed the voices of my pursuers? "'They have dogs at off. "'So far I'd seen none of the lower animals in Innsmouth. "'That flopping or pattering was monstrous. "'I could not look upon the degenerate creatures responsible for it. "'I would keep my eyes shut until the sun receded towards the west. "'The horde was very close now. "'They are foul with their hoarse snarlings.' the ground almost shaking with their alien-rhythmed footfalls. My breath nearly ceased to come, and I'd put every ounce of my willpower into the task of holding my eyelids down. I'm not even yet willing to say whether what followed was a hideous actuality or just a nightmare hallucination. The later action of the government, after my frantic appeals, would tend to confirm it as a monstrous truth. But could not a hallucination have been repeated under the quasi-hypnotic spell of that ancient, haunted and shadowed town? Such places have strange properties, and the legacy of insane legend might well have acted upon more than one human imagination amidst these dead, stench-cursed streets and huddles of rotting roofs and crumbling steeples. What is not possible that the germ of actual contagious madness lurks in the depths of the shadow, underneath Innsmouth. Who can be sure of reality after hearing things like that of the old tale of Zadok Allen? The government men never found Per Zadok. Had no conjectures to make as to what became of him. Where does madness leave and reality begin? It is possible that even my latest fear is sheer delusion. But I must try to tell what I thought I saw that night under the mocking yellow moon saw surging and hopping down the rolly road, the plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of this desolate railway cut. Of course my resolution is to keep my eyes shut, field. was foredoomed to failure, for who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisily past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away. I thought I was prepared for the worst, and I really ought to have been prepared considering what I'd been seen before. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal. So should I not have been ready to face such a strengthening of the abnormal element? To look upon forms in which there was no mixture of the normal at all? I did not open my eyes until the raucous clamour came loudly from the point obviously straight ahead. Then I knew that a long section of them must be plainly in sight where the sides of the cut flattened out and the road crossed behind the track. And I could longer keep myself from sampling whatever horror that leering yellow moon might have to show. It was the end. For whatever remains to me of life on the surface of this earth, of every vestige of mental peace and confidence in the integrity of nature and of the human mind, nothing that I could have imagined, nothing... Even that I could have gathered that I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in even the most literal way would be in any way comparable to the demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw or believed that I saw. I've tried to hint at what it was in order to postpone the horror of writing it down baldly. Can it be possible that this planet has actually spawned such things that human eyes have truly seen as objective flesh? What man has hitherto known only in the f- fertile fantasy and tenuous legend? And yet, I saw them in limitless stream. Flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding. Surging inhumanely towards that spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant, sour brand of fantastic nightmare. And some of them have tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal. And some of them were strangely roped. And one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers. And had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant colour was a greyish green. Though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery the ridges of their backs were scaly their forms were vaguely suggesting the anthropoid while their heads were of heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed at the sides of their necks were palpitating gills while their long paws were webbed. they hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs sometimes on four I was somehow glad that they'd not more than four limbs Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. I knew too well what they must be. For was not the memory of that evil tiara in Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of that nameless design, living and horrible. as I saw them I knew also of what that humped, tiaraed priest in the black church basement had fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only a least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit fainting. The first I have ever had. Chapter 5 It was a gentle daylight rain that awakened me from my stupor in the bush and when I staggered out onto the railway ahead I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odour too was gone. Innsmouth's ruined roofs and toppling steeples loomed up greyly towards the southeast, but not a living creature did I spy in all the desolate salt marshes around. My watch was still going and it told me that the hour was past noon. The reality of what I'd been through was highly uncertain in my mind, but I felt that something hideous lay in the background. I must get away from an evil shadow my? and accordingly I began to test my cramped, wearied powers of locomotion. Despite weakness, hunger, horror, and bewilderment, I'd found myself after a time able to walk. So I started slowly along the muddy road to Rowley. Before evening I was in the village getting a meal and providing myself with presentable clothes. I caught the night train to Arkham and the next day talked long and earnestly with government officials there. Process I later repeated in Boston. But the main result of these conversations the public is now familiar and I wish for normality's sake that there were nothing more to tell. Perhaps this madness has overtaken me yet perhaps a greater horror or a greater marvel is reaching out. As well be imagined, I gave up most of the four-planned features of the rest of my tour. The scenic, architectural and antiquarian diversions of which I'd counted on so heavily. Nor did I dare look for that piece of strange jewellery said to be in the Miskatonic University Museum. I did, however, improve my stay in Arkham by collecting some genealogical notes I long wished to process. Very rough and hasty data, it's true but capable of good use later when I might have time to collate and codify them. The curator of the historical society there, Mr E. Lappin Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me and expressed unusual interest when I told him that I was a grandson of Arkham. Eliza, who was born in 1867 and I married James Williamson of Ohio at the age of 17. It seemed that a maternal uncle of mine had been here many years before on a quest very much like my own, and that my grandfather's family was a topic of some local curiosity. There had, Mr Peabody said, been considerable discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orne, just after the Civil War, since the ancestry of the bride was peculiarly puzzling. That bride was understood to have been an orphaned Marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes, but her education had been in France and she knew very little of her family a guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess but that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people and in time he dropped out of sight so that the governess assumed his role by court appointment the French woman, now long dead was very tacturing and there were those who said that she could have told more than she did but the most baffling thing was the inability of anyone to place the recorded parents of the young woman. Enoch and Lydia, among the known families of the New Hampshires. Possibly, and he suggested, she was the natural daughter of some marsh of prominence. She certainly had the true marsh eyes. The most puzzling was done after her early death, which took place at the birth of my grandmother, her only child. Having formed some disagreeable impressions connected with the name of Marsh, I didn't welcome the news that it belonged on my own ancestral tree, nor was I pleased by Mr Peabody's suggestion that I had the true marsh eyes myself. However, I was grateful for the data for which I knew would prove valuable, and took copious notes and lists of book references regarding the well-documented Orne family. I went directly home to Toledo from Boston, and later spent a month at Manupi recuperating from my ordeal. In September, I entered Oberlin for my final year, and from then till next June was busy with studies and other wholesome activities. It reminded me of the bygone terror only by occasional visits from government men in connection with the campaign, which my pleas and evidence had started. Around the middle of July, just a year after the Innsmouth experience, I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland, checking some of my new genealogical data with the various notes traditions and bits of early material in existence there and seeing what kind of connected a chart that I could construct. I didn't exactly relish this task for the atmosphere of the Williamson home had always depressed me. There was a strain of morbidity here and my mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child although she always welcomed her father when he came to Toledo. My Arkham-born grandmother had seemed strange and almost terrifying to me, and I do not think that I grieved when she disappeared. I was eight years old then, and it was said that she'd wandered off in grief after the suicide of my Uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He'd shot himself after a trip to New England. The same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled at the Arkham Historical Society. This uncle had resembled her, and I'd never liked him either. Something about the staring, unwinking expression above of of them had given me a vague, unaccountable easiness. My mother and Uncle Walter had not looked like that. They were like their father, through poor little cousin Lawrence. Walter said, had an almost perfect duplicate of his grandfather before the condition took him to the permanent seclusion of a sanatorium in Canton. I'd not seen him for four years, but my uncle once implied that his state, both mental and physical, was very bad this worry had probably been a major cause of his mother's death two years before. My grandfather and his widowed son Walter now comprised the Cleveland household, but the memory of older times hung thickly over it. I still disliked the place and tried to get my researches done as quickly as possible. The Williamson records and traditions were supplied in abundance by my grandfather, though for orn material I had to depend on my uncle Walter who put at my disposal the contents of all of his files, including notes, letters, cuttings, heirlooms, photographs and miniatures. It was in going over the letters and pictures on the orne side that I began to acquire a kind of terror on my own ancestry. As I've said, my grandmother and Uncle Douglas had always disturbed me. Now, years after their passing, I gazed at their pictured faces with a measurably heightened feeling of repulsion and alienation. I could not at first understand the change, but gradually a horrible sort of comparison began to obtrude itself on my unconscious mind, despite the steady refusal of my consciousness to admit even the least suspicion of it. It was clear that the typical expression of these faces now suggested something that it had not suggested before, something which would bring stark panic if too openly thought of, but the worst shock came when my uncle showed me the orange jewellery in a downtown safe deposit box. Some of the items were delicate and inspiring enough, but there was one box of strange old pieces descended from my mysterious great-grandmother, which my uncle was almost reluctant to produce. They were, he said, a very grotesque and almost repulsive design, and he never, to his knowledge, had been publicly worn though my grandmother used to enjoy looking at them. Vague legends of bad luck clustered around them, and my great-grandmother's French governess had said they ought not to be worn in New England, though it would be quite safe to wear them in Europe. As my uncle began slowly and grudgingly to unwrap the things, he urged me not to be shocked by the strangeness and frequent hideousness of the designs. Archaeologists and artists who had seen them produced their workmanship superlatively and exotically exquisite, though no one seemed able to define their exact material, or assigned to any specific art tradition. There were two armlets, a tiara, and a kind of pectoral, the latter having in high relief certain figures of almost unbearable extravagance. During this description kept a tight rein on my emotions, but my face must have betrayed my mounting fears. My uncle looked concerned and paused in his unwrapping to study my countenance I motioned to him to continue which he did with renewed signs of reluctance he seemed to expect some demonstration when the first piece, the tiara, became visible but I doubt if he expected quite what actually happened I did not expect it either for I thought I was thoroughly forewarned regarding what the jewellery would turn out to be what I did was to faint silently away just as I'd done in that briar-choked railway cut a year before. From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension. Nor do I know how much is a hideous truth and how much is madness. My great-grandmother had been a Marsh of unknown source whose husband lived in Arkham. And did not old Zadok say that the daughter of Obed Marsh, by a monstrous mother, was married to an Arkham man through a trip? What was in the ancient topper? and I muttered about the likeness of my eyes to Captain Obed's. In Arkham, too, the curator had told me that I had the true Marsh eyes. Was Obed Marsh my own great-great-grandfather? Who, or what, then, was my great-great-grandmother? But perhaps all of this was madness. Those white goldish ornaments might have easily been bought from some Innsmouth sailor by the mother of my great-great-grandfather whoever he was and that he might look into the staring face of my grandmother and self slain uncle and might sheer fancy on my part sheer fancy bolstered up by the Innsmouth shadow which had so darkly coloured my imagination but why had my uncle killed himself after an ancestral quest in New England for more than two years I fought off those reflections with partial success my father secured me a place in an insurance office, and I buried myself in routine as deeply as possible. In the winter of 1930 to 31, however, in the dreams, they began. They were sparse and insidious at first, but increased in frequency and vividness as the weeks went by. Great watery spaces opened up before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths, of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with the nameless horror the moment I awoke. But during the dreams they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their unhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their evil sea bottom temples. This was much more than I could remember, but even what I did remember each morning would be enough to stamp out as a madman or a genius, if ever I dared to write it down. Some frightful influence, I felt, was seeking gradually to drag me out of the scene world of wholesome life into unnameable abyss, blackness and alienage, and the process told heavily on me. My health and appearance grew steadily worse till finally I was forced to give up my position and adopt the static, secluded life of an invalid. Some odd nervous affliction had lost me in its grip and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. It was then that I began to study the mirror with mounting alarm. The slow ravages of disease are not pleasant to watch but in my case there was something subtler more puzzling in the background. My father seemed to notice it he began looking at me curiously and almost affrightedly. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? One night, I had a frightful dream, in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a fluorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate and floriates. She welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic, She had changed, as those who take to the water change, and told me that she had never died. Instead, she had gone to a spot that her dead son had learned about, and had leaped to a realm whose wonders, destined for him as well, he had spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived since before man had ever walked the earth. I also met that which had been her grandmother. For 80,000 years, Fatangadai had lied in Yathena-Noé, and thither she had gone back till Obed Marsh was dead. Yathena-Noé was not destroyed when the upper earth men shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The Deep Ones could never be destroyed. Even though the magic of the Forgotten Old Ones might sometimes check them, for the present they would not rest but someday if they remembered they would rise again from the tribute great Cthulhu craved it would be a city greater than Innsmouth next time they had planned to spread and had brought up that which would help them but now they must wait once more for bringing the upper crust men's death I must now do a penance but that would not be happy this was the dream in which I saw Shagoth for the first time and the sight set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. That morning the mirror definitely told me that I had acquired the Innsmouth look. So far I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step, but certain dreams have deterred. A tense extreme of horror is lessening, and I feel queerly drawn towards the unknown sea-deeps instead of fearing them. I hear and do strange things in my sleep, and awake with a kind of exultation instead of terror. I do not believe that I need to wait for the full changes most would have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanatorium as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard of splendours await me below, and I must seek them soon. La Relay. Cthulhu Flattagin. Aya. I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to Marvel Shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea, dive down through the black abysses to the cyclopean melancholy, columned in the way, and in that lair of the deep ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory. Forever. Well, for what it's worth. I don't think the nearby town is insmouth under a different name. But I will be making sure the locks are extra secure on my bedroom door, all the same. Anyway, looking at the time, I think we could contact Nicole the Chantrain now. Why do I feel so nervous? Okay. This is for my uncle. Deep breaths. Hello. Hi. Um, I was hoping to speak to Miss Nicole De Uh, My name's Kraken. I, I know you don't know me, but Kraken, is, is it really you? I've, I've missed you so much. You've been gone for... A... No, no, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm not that Kraken. I believe you knew my uncle. He had the same name. I'm his nephew. We we've never met. You're not. No, I'm sorry My uncle's actually been missing for a long time now and I was going through his items and trying to find out where he's maybe gone and I found this photograph and it had your number on it so I wanted to call just to ask if he knew anything about where he was going to or what his plans were if you've heard from him at all or anything Hello? She. She hung up. All of this time, all of these clues, and it's a dead end. Why? I don't understand. I don't understand I'm sorry um, I I need to go I I have a lot to think about um, remember to pack um, we we'll be leaving pretty early for I'm sorry. Good night, my friend. I hope you sleep well. We both deserve it. welcome to the end of the episode and the end of season one. My name's Paul, I play Kraken in the story, and I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for being here. I hope you've really enjoyed the little side stories that I've put around these classics, and I've really enjoyed writing them for you. I know that the last six months have been quite difficult for many people, so whenever I've received feedback telling me that I've helped you sleep to deal with insomnia to deal with stress it really means a lot so thank you for being here season 2 will be back in a couple of weeks and we're going to be covering some more classics including Dracula and Frankenstein and there will also be some guest narrators too my vision for Kraken's cabin is that it's going to be a B&B and some wonderful people will be able to join me so it's not always going to be just my voice there are some incredible people in my life and I can't wait to share them with you alongside some wonderful stories so again let me just say goodnight from me Talia and Nisa I hope you sleep well my friend you truly deserve it and thank you